everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapiro, and with me, as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, and when the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. These are the end times. Sean Edry's quoting a Mark Miller comic. That was Mark... No, that wasn't Mark Miller. That was Mark Miller. Was it? Yeah, that's from Civil War. That's literally Mm. from... Yes. Mm. You you thought you were recording the movie? No, no, and you were no. I know comic. that it, I knew that it was a, a quote from the comics. I was not aware that it was a Miller comic because yes. it's uncharacteristically subtle. <laughs> well, subtle <laughs> as things go, nice and uplifting, as it were. We are a comic book podcast. Yes, yes. Tom. As as you could have guessed from the, all the griping about <laughs> whether or not we were quoting a comic. This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and on-shelf source for comic books news. Reviews, previews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, we are on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. So, we've been away for a while. We've missed an episode. That's my cuticles my, needed buffing. That's No, actually, that's my bad. But we, we won't get into it. We'll just jump right into the news because in right. the last month there's been lots of news. Yeah, Most I of think them not nice. The, the best approach that we can take in my opinion is there were really two subjects, two major subjects that we wanted to talk about last episode and that we are going to bring into mm-hmm. this one before we get to the more recent news. Yeah. So let's start with the big story. And obviously by this point everyone has already weighed in, but it's worth throwing our two cents into it. So the Eddie Braganza thing. Let's yes. let's do it. Recap. This all began when DC announced that Shelley Bond was fired from Vertigo. Shelley Bond, of course, had been the executive editor, yeah. I think, of yeah. Vertigo after Karen Berger left. So she was sort of the de facto editor-in-chief of the line. Um, her removal was attributed to DC restructuring and reconsidering We've Vertigo, talked about the bringing up of Young Animal as imprint. As soon as they announced Young Animal, you and I both said, like, you know, Vertical was done. That was yeah. the end times for that. Now, that would have been unfortunate enough. DC, by the way, is still claiming that Vertigo is not done. Jamie S. Rich saying, I'm, I'm going to run. Sure. I, I'm not sure if he said he's going to run Vertigo, but someone's going to run Vertigo, and Vertigo is continuing, but... Mm. We don't care. Like, the writing is on the wall at this point. When you start shuffling senior editors who have been around for years and just, like, throwing them out, it's a sign that there's something wrong but, with a line. Yeah, but, you know, lines... Sometimes lines are canceled. And, you it's know, fine. Wildstrom went away, and it, it was sad, but it, we, it went we away, arguably, like, four four years after Trudeau went away. That's not the big thing. No, we, we talked about at the time, like, the issue with Vertigo being is that there's no longer any real reason to justify its existence. It isn't the place anymore for creators to go and get their freak on. Um, when they want to do that, they go to Image, they go to wherever. Yeah, I recommend uh, for you to listen to the latest podcorn, the... Beat Amy Reader podcast in Uh which she talked about her experiences working at DC versus Image, and she was basically saying, Why do I work at Image? Because when I get my checks for the first year of Rocket Queen, uh, Rocket Rocket Girl, Girl, not Rocket Queen, she could be a Rocket Queen next time, (laughs) who knows? When when she got her first check for Rocket Girl, it was more money than everything she ever did at DC before. But but we knew that. Uh, Karen Gillan had that whole column about how he was talking about the. The income that he got from the Wicked and the Divine was more than he got for his entire run of Iron yeah. Man. It's like now, this is not news to anybody. I think Vertigo could have had a place in the market as the image that is on time. The image, <laughs> because, okay, we've talked about this. The image that has editors standing above the creators with a whip and like, no, 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 do it. 
do it. Yeah. But it, with the contracts that they are offering the creators, it's no wonder that everybody, anybody who can is like saying, no, if I'm going to do my self-creator thing, I'm going to do it at Image, at yeah. Boom, at and, IDW, at and whatever. And to be honest, even with all of their problems with scheduling, if the mentality for Image is that at the end of the day, these books go up on a shelf... Right in trade paperbacks, and they are good with their trade paperbacks. Like they don't let series lie fallow for too long. Yeah, if that's the mentality, and it's like it means that creators get to have two to three month intervals between issues or whatever, five or six, seven or eight, whatever, nine or like, ten. If the end result is a trade, I feel like that's probably or say number eight that. will come out someday, someday, yes. somehow when the sun but, explodes. Yes, yes, but the actual as it turned out. Bond's removal ended up being completely unexpected by DC, I'm sure. The first in a very long chain of dominoes that started knocking each other down one at a time. Because what happened was, as soon as Bond's removal was announced, Jennifer DeGuzman put out a tweet asking a question that led many people to compare her to Hannibal Burris with the Bill Cosby scandal. Because what she said was very simple. She's like, okay, there is a senior editor at DC who is a sexual harasser who has dozens of uh, notes in his HR file who uh, the upper echelon at DC are aware is a serial harasser and do, do nothing against that. Nick Hanover was the one who dropped his name. Yes. Who identified it as Eddie Braganza. DeGuzman, I guess she wanted to not get into that. Hanover was really the one who dropped the mic. And again, like the, it was amazing to me how the situation paralleled what happened with Bill Cosby. It just took one person to name him. And later, Blazing Cool added an actual report about people seeing him physically oh, harassing yeah. women at yeah. a convention. Now, that, so it's, it was basically three people who, who set this in motion. It started with the Guzman talking. She placed it specifically in the context of Shelley Bond being fired. They're saying, mm. okay, you just fired a female editor from a company that, to be brutally honest, does not have the best reputation when it comes to women in the workplace, as it is, just numerically speaking. Nick Hanover identified this harasser as Eddie Braganza, and then Janelle Asselin confirmed that she left DC specifically because she knew that Braganza had been promoted within the company, despite their awareness of what he did. One of the things that kept coming on again and again is a comment that the Superman editorial mm. office, in which Braganza is the head of, is not welcome place to women. Which is to say, DC Comics have, not legally, but sort of announced, we don't want women working in there because we're afraid that he'll do something to them that will open us to a lawsuit. The term has been, uh, like, they're, they're referring to the Superman office as a quarantine zone, basically. It's which, an all-men zone to prevent Eddie Braganza from harassing women. Which is exactly the type of thing that happens when you have, like, a small inside community trying to deal with troubles. They, they can't, you know, they can't go to the quote-unquote law because then people will see that they've done something bad. So their solution is, well, we'll just... Figure it out in-house. And the solution is, we'll just keep him away from temptation. Yes, 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 yes. We'll just keep women away from him. And in fact, that's and by how that, it turns out. Basically saying, we'll keep women away from one of the big chunks of our company. Yeah, one of the things that came out, it started with Bleeding Cool, but then I think other outlets started uh, latching onto it, was the idea that looking into the overall, uh, both pre-rebirth and after-rebirth, uh, 
there are no women working in the Superman office. Uh, Emanuela Lupacino is the artist on the upcoming Superwoman, but she's freelance. She doesn't work at the actual Well, offices. Wonder Woman is part of the Superman office, and wasn't it written by uh, uh, David Finch's wife? Meredith Finch. Meredith Finch. Uh, yes, but again, I think that that w- that did not require her to be at DC headquarters in Burbank, where presumably Braganza is situated. Mm. Like the the administrative level is completely okay. Now we're going and, into rumors and allegations. Which well, I no, think I, was, I do want to point out this again. This is conjecture, but it did it does sync up to the idea that Marguerite Bennett was supposed to be working right, on Wonder, Wonder Woman, Woman, and we know that Rucka came in. She never confirmed that she was up for it, but you know this would seem to explain why. She didn't get the job. Now, here's the interesting bit in all of this. Not to say that, you know, allegations of sexual harassment and questions of why Berganza is still at DC, especially in light of this going public. When it wasn't public, when it was just sort of rumors and people not willing to come forward and name him, you could at least say, fine, it's allegations. It's the Edmondson thing all over again, where people don't know what he did, what he didn't do, what he said, what he didn't say. We have actual testimony now from people who allege that Eddie Berganza harassed them. This is enough of an open, you know, everyone is talking about it. You would think that DC would take action. They have done nothing. But this was the bit I found interesting. Katie Jones was one of the first people to make statements that a senior editor at DC had put his hands on her, basically, uh, was almost raped. She was contacted by human resources, but not by DC's human resources, by Warner Brothers' human resources, which suggests that the WB are conducting an internal investigation of DC. Now, that's something I find fascinating because one of the arguments that was made, obviously the whole subject of sexual harassment in the comic book industry has been a long and torturous it's still, it's still a boys and ongoing club. phenomenon. Yeah. It's been it's been a point of so much critical discussion, mm-hmm. not just in relation to Briganza specifically. We literally just got off Scott Alley doing this nonsense. Well, right? he's still working at Dark Horse. He's you're, still working at Dark Horse. You're talked about people not getting fired. Scott right. Alley. He's still there. Yeah. And I mean he's far from the only one. Brian Wood is still getting work. You know that these things continue to happen is one aspect of it. But the thing that is curious to me, and I want to sort of unpack it a little bit, is the notion that DC and Marvel, I'm sure, have managed to maintain this sort of atmosphere of boys club, sexual harassment, all of this, for as long as they were able to, because they were, up until recently, independent entities. The fact that DC is now owned by Warner Brothers, and Marvel is now owned by by Warner for years... Yes, but not like the they, restructuring to DC Entertainment brought them more under corporate umbrella. Yeah, but Diane Nelson's more direct supervision is, I think, a more recent development. Not something that happened yesterday, but it does suggest that now, if you know, for DC to have this scandal now while they are directly controlled by WB is interesting to me because. Larger corporations that are more in the public eye, I think, are less able to sweep things under the rug. I, I don't know enough about these things, but I just we just recently finished with the whole Doctor Luke was it thing at Sony. Uh, the wh- thing with Kesha. Yeah, in which you know she announced and everybody pretty much agreed that this guy's an arrestor and 
she was forced to work with him and Sony didn't terminate his contract. Mm. So I don't, I don't think corporations like that work like that. Well, not Sony at least. I don't know. You know, I think it's just something that WB is throwing to the internet to like, see, 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 we're dealing with this. Yes, we're fine. But this that has been... That won't go- placate anybody. It's though. been going on for more than a month now, ever since the whole thing started. And the only thing that happened is that Dandy Dio has closed his Twitter account. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we'll get to him. Which, we'll get to you him. know, th- that's what you probably should do after, right no. after you get rid of Eddie no. Reganza. Well, exactly. Yeah. Like, what, what's been infuriating people, especially DC fans, like, they're the ones who are most infuriated by this, is the fact that DC have said nothing. Didio has not made any kind of public statement. Jim Lee hasn't. The outhouse, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, offered $100 for anyone going to a convention at any point who, who sees Jim Lee or Dan Didio on a panel to get up and ask about Eddie Berganza. And I don't know if that's happening or not, or, or like just to see them sweat. But really, it's it's remarkable that they have taken no action. Again, I don't because, know if because they... that's what you do when you're a small club, right? You close ranks. But they're not a small club anymore. Well, they're a small club within a big company, and their first response to trouble is still, "Let's close ranks. Let's take care of it in house." Again, I'm saying it as someone who grew up in the kibbutz and know how these kind of things work, in which. You have a problem, you don't share it with the outsiders. It's like the old Jewish thing, you know, it's scandal for the goyim. You're not supposed to talk about bad stuff off the community, outside of the community. You're supposed to, like, deal with it in-out, which is the worst thing that you can do. Yeah. But this is how things go. That I don't I don't think comic book companies are unique to that. I think that, no, again, the boys club atmosphere that's been going on since the foundation of these companies yeah, I think makes also, things a bit worse. There may also be an expectation... That this will die down the way it did with previous scandals. Because there were other scandals that people were outraged about for 60 seconds and then just went back to Again, Marvel. because the internet is a flash mob, but right? Things burn up and then this... I think it... See, but the fact that, that Warner Brothers got involved is is unusual. That's the thing. Because, uh, the, I mean, Braganza isn't the first, right? Mm-hmm. It raises an interesting question. But did somebody actually got fired over such things? Not yet, no, but that see, could be because there's an investigate. Like we know that there is an investigation. No, I'm not talking about, about brigands. I'm talking about in general. Have you ever heard a sex scandal in the comic book community that ended with a company saying, "Well, this guy is no longer wanted well, in our house"? That's part the of the disease is, in the media, isn't it? Hmm? That's part of the disease in this medium. Is precisely the problem that in any other. Well, again, no, I because mean, look, we just. No, no, no. Dr. Luke, when Cong- Dr. Luke, fine. Congressmen have been kicked out of office for having, like, scandals and, and putting their hands where they don't belong. You know, and if you can do that at the highest level of American government, then you can certainly do that for comic books. You know, I just well, find appar- Apparently you can't. Speaker of the House was convicted of, like, b- molesting teenagers or something. I mean, come on. There comes a point where... By continuing to sweep this under the rug and, and by continuing to cover it up, you are becoming complicit in this situation. And if, you know, it, it gets to the point where you, you invite negative consequences for DC, right? Like, I hope something horrendous happens to them as a result of this because they well, are being complicit in it. They know that Berganza is a problem. And instead of getting rid of him, they're, iso- they're essentially saying women can't work on Superman. Yeah, or because you know, you know, he can't keep his hands to himself. Say, then fire him. Say something. 
at, le- at least say something. We're looking into it, right? We understand that this is a problem. We're aware of the fact that there have been some unfortunate incidents and we are trying to educate our, like, you know, take some kind of public stance. Again. Like, mm. how, how insane is it? And really, like, this is the thing that disgusts me. You don't even have to mean it. But to not take a public stance against sexual harassment as if that is somehow ambiguous? Ambivalent? What? What is that exactly? Like, how do you not say sexual harassment is bad? You can be a hypocrite and say that and still do it, right? Fine. Scott Alley's like, oh, I learned my lesson. And to be fair, we don't know what's been going on since the exposure he's still working at dark horse nobody knows like there haven't been any other reports of incidents nobody knows if he's still doing it nobody knows if he's getting help i don't know well there I, may I, would be like, situations... i would like to hope that right now if he ever does something we'll know about it simply because oh the few no. comic book media that there are there will jump on it right yeah absolutely like now this is the thing once you once they know that it's going on there's intense scrutiny now Like, Scott Alley cannot screw up anymore, and neither can Eddie Braganza. If another situation is to come to light, like, if he does anything, people will know. The problem is that it doesn't solve the core issue. And as long as that continues to be a thing, I mean, what do you do with that, right? Where, where do you take that? It's, it's something that, you know, anyone who loves comics on any level should be ashamed of, of like, being associated with this by proxy by degrees like we're all implicated in this and i i i just i'm i'm a, i'm like i'm aghast like i am i'm at a loss for words at the notion that you know the that these things happen fine it's like it's unfortunate but like that there's that they're not being dealt with is the thing mm. ugh Uh, less something less disgusting speaking of sex oh, that was Le- a terrible segue and I apologize but Oni Oni has decided to open a new imprint for Erotica called Limerence Press to the best of my knowledge they haven't announced any specific titles although well, they, they've announced it, one thing they've announced they released the three volumes Oh, uh, oh Joy Sex Toy, which was a webcomic by Erica Moend and Matthew Nolan. Hmm. The first two books, as far as I know, were published physically as part of a Kickstarter, but now they give the whole thing free volume set that you can get in the store or okay. order via Oni. That could work out. Uh, I, I remember looking at it, at the Kickstarter, and it looked fine. You know, it looked really nice. Not, not necessarily my thing, but, you know. Uh, well, we've talked about sex in comics recently when we interviewed... Uh, Chip Starsky. Chip Zdarsky. We interviewed one person. I can't remember his name. I'm <laughs> one terrible. person for now. And it's nice to see that, again, unfortunately talking about the terrible boy club atmosphere of comic books, that after a hundred years or so of this medium existing, sex is finally being dealt with like adults would? Is not, it not, though? Not in all comics. In enough comics for it to exist. When, when people ask me, Is there a comic that treats sex like an actual thing that people do and not a source of drama or naughty bits? I can say, well, yeah, sure, you can read Sex Rumors, you can read Saga, you can read uh, Multiply Warheads, or apparently you can read Oh Joy Sex Toy. Mm, these things feel like... 
on the one hand, I agree. Like these books specifically deal with the topic of sex as something much more maturely mature and down to earth and realistic. I would say. Yeah, it's not discipline. Exactly. Oh, it's not the discipline. But again, like that's also a consequence of certain creators belonging to an age in which. You know, sex was more of a taboo to break than exactly. Thing to like you felt like with. you achieved something artistically because your comic had tits, and suddenly it was like, <gasps> right? Yeah. I mean, so many Vertigo books of the early '90s got by just by the fact of like you know you had partial nudity and all of a sudden you felt accomplished. And it's like, well, some, we're past some things that. were more actually actually mature, not mature right. rated, just really mature, but very few of them. We're past that now. Most. Comic books are still not there, but to be fair, most media, in most mediums, is still not there. Most Anyone movie, who watches Game of Thrones knows this for a in fact. In TV, in movies, in in computer games. Oh my god, <laughs> video games. If we start talking about the subject of sex and well, sexuality... you will talk because games, I'm not a gamer. I am, and I believe me when I tell you, we have a long you way know, to go. Even literature, it's things are usually so bad that you have this annual award, I think, in England about... The worst sexing of the year. <laughs> I do not remember the name. E.L. James probably took that award many, many times. See, here's the thing. I'm not sure she's the worst. Oh, she's the worst. It's like no, the worst. Like you know, literally pretentious, lit thick, who tries to describe everything with flowing no. metaphors. Well, her, she doesn't do. This is a bit of an aside. Well, we're but like, let's, no, 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 but, but, but you know, she doesn't do because this is what I'm hoping Oni doesn't do, mm-hmm. and I don't think that they will based no, on no, how no, they no. work. But like her thing is not, you know, he his purple headed warrior penetrated her silken femininity and you know reduced her to a quivering mound of love pudding. No, but in terms of Where did what that came, from? <laughs> that actually came from the Naked Gun. But that's a different oh, story. Okay, uh, you I came up with that on my own. Jeez, no, Naked Gun is definitely a different Zinu. story. But um, you know, so that with Fifty Shades of Grey specifically, and in fact, it is sort of related to the issue of how comics specifically treat sexuality. It's sort of it's what's known as IKEA porn. Right, mm. he took A and inserted it into slot B, and it's like, okay, that's fine. But first of all, people don't do that. Second of all, if they do do that, then it's not as great as you like. You know, when you are strapping people to the ceiling and doing all kinds of weird stuff to them, it's a little more complicated than you know than what the medium in its immature phases mm-hmm. tends to depict. Now, only making an entire imprint for this concept. My hope would be that they are appealing to creators who have the more advanced mindset of, you know, sex is something that human beings do with each other. They can use it for physical satisfaction, emotional satisfaction, whatever, like whatever purpose it serves. But it is not something that is in itself, like it's not the goal, right? It is not, we have sex, so look at how grown up we are. We we got to move past that and into something that is now, more only if you're listening and hopefully we you know are. you are. We well, know you we are. don't. We don't know. We no, we do. Uh, I would like to mention that Colleen Coover's Small Favors mm. has still not been republished in decades. Decade now. It has been. It a came while. out in two oh one. I'd like to say. I, I'm I not think sure. so. Even earlier, maybe. So anyway, it's not been published for a long, long time, and Top Shelf has promised to publish the whole thing in a nice hardcover. Never came out. They announced it in 2014. Do they have the rights? Well, yeah, they bought the rights, apparently. Ah, okay. Otherwise, they wouldn't announce, we're going to publish small favors. 
Uh, well, no, because we've decided it. And, the question and Colin is, Coover is like, what? What? When? What? I didn't sell them anything, didn't she? No, no, no. I, I'm just imagining no, a hypoth- hypothetical situation well, in which they just announce, oh, we're going to publish this. And the, the creator no, is like, what? This is the interesting question, though, mm. is if Top Shelf made that commitment and presumably purchased the rights from Coover and they didn't follow through and then, of course, the IDW takeover happened... Do the do the rights revert back to her? In which case, she could take it to owning herself. Yeah. You know, I, I would like her to take it to somewhere. That's a comic should yeah. be published. And Oni, I think Oni could be a good place for you know sex positive comics. Sure. They in the early two thousands, they were image before image was image. Right, the place where creators do creator own stuff that is not limited by. Yeah, they've fallen a bit works. by the wayside lately. Even though they they do mm-hmm. still on occasion put out very solid material. Um, it would be nice for them to try and carve out another piece. Again, it all goes back to the idea of in order to survive in today's market, you have to have some kind of niche that you are capable of cornering that others cannot. Well, they were Image. the hipster niche before hipsters became annoying. Sure, but hipster so. isn't a genre. Well, like, not, well, it is, unfortunately. It's just a very bad one. Yeah. In the sense that like, if Dark Horse is cornering the market on horror, Image is cornering the market on science fiction... Oni could absolutely take this imprint as a sign of let's move in that direction and not be Xenoscope, right? Well, that, that would be the thing. That's it's not like, a high bar to clear. Though. Exactly. Like if you are not Xenoscope and you are not Avatar, then you are automatically distinguishing yourself from them well, by I, presenting stories I now that they imagine would never Oni touch. Press new slogan: "We are not Xenoscope, Oni Press." That would get them a lot of. You're laughing, but I mean, Xenoscope is the joke of the industry because of what it does. Like, there's no other reason for it. Mm. It's not that they are legendarily bad at what they do. It's that they do one thing, and that's all they do. And every... Well, they do two things, T and A. They tend to come together, though. It's like It, it tends to be sort of like the, the, the mm. one package with the two features. Um, three, I guess, if you're counting the T's separately. But, <laughs> you know, so I do hope that... Mature podcast. <laughs> I do hope... <laughs> We're the adult podcast today. I do hope that they are careful in the material that they select, right? Starting with this webcomic, I'm not familiar with it personally, but it does have a reputation for being more more real in terms of how yeah. it presents sex. And really... It's an actual teaching comic. Exactly. Non-fiction comic. So it's both non-fiction and sex comics, which are two things that need more representation. Fine. Yeah. You know, absolutely. We could use more of that. Good luck to them. Movies? Movies. There are so many movie news. There are. Let's start with the big one, because the thing that we did not get to do last episode was to review Civil War. Now, granted, at the time, I had seen it and you hadn't, so it would have been sort of a one-sided review anyway. But now we've both seen it. Yes. So let's talk about Captain America Civil Uh, War. We should mention, yeah, Captain America Civil War came out and made tons and tons of money. And we saw it a week before the American audience, which is one of the few times I'm sort of happy to be in exile, but it worked out It's one of the oddest things ever... A movie called Captain America coming to America after the rest of the world. That's very unpatriotic That's of for them. me. It's because they know I'm here. Anyway, the movie came out and made tons of money and great reviews. How's it been doing um, um, financially? Because I haven't been following uh, it. It's over $700 million worldwide now. Does and that beat BBS? Not yet, but it's just first week in the U.S. when we ah, talk about okay. It will pass BBS. The big question is, will it pass the other Marvel movies? It opened with less money than the first Avengers movie, okay, and I think even less than Age of Ultron, but did it open 
it was the best opening of the Captain America movies. Right. Which makes sense when you think about it, because the first Avenger was good, but a very particular experience. The Winter Soldier, nobody knew what they were getting into mm. when they picked it up. I think, like, in hindsight, it would have had more of a stronger okay. opening if people had known okay. it would be one of the best movies. For, for the actual review, right? Let's do it. Um, I think it's a very well-made movie. My two big reviews uh, issues are this. It spends way, way, way too much time jockeying for position. It's like, we should put character A in place B, and they should be against each other for reason C, and then they should form group D because of political clause E, and I'm like, oh my god, man, you're just making pe- uh, cape people punch each other. Don't overthink it. And mm. B, it's still, you know, it's better than the comic, thank god. <laughs> you do not have yeah. to try very hard Again, for that. It has almost not, like, Although, like, like Age of Ultron, it has almost nothing to do with the actual comic other than you know, the, the movie had Ultron in it. Mm. And Although, the, mm-hmm. it, they do share a central narrative flaw. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah, that. and that's the big thing in which you can't really use ongoing superhero narratives to question the very nature of superhero narratives. The, the idea of, well, what if superheroes were in the real world? Who would, you know, watch the Watchmen? It's the kind of thing that you can only ask in the closed narrative space, in the Watchmen, in the Dark Knight Returns, in the American way, because... I, don't, what, I disagree. I, I don't, because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, asking, well, if superheroes existed in the real world, what would A, B, and C mean? Sounds interesting until you realize that once you put in the whole notion of a superhero universe, and the Marvel movies are at this point a superhero universe, they operate on a completely different rule and history. Because asking... Uh, why Shouldn't do you it's, assume it's the real world specifically, though? Because that's what people are talking about, right? What no. what would happen if superheroes existed in the real world? It's what's what's Who, the relevance of the superhero? That's what everybody asking. What's the relevance of the superhero? Right? Every, where, where did you see that in? No, I'm just trying to trace like critiques. The, no, the fact that reviewers and critiques can say whatever the hell they want. I'm asking about like the primary text here. Like if we're talking about the film and the comic, you, the comic okay. absolutely was informed by, and we'll actually get into this in more detail. The later. comic wasn't informed. No. But it was Mark Miller's attempt to be "quote unquote" real. Mm. I I disagree with the idea that the film does that specifically. That it asks like, "What if superheroes existed in the no, real world?" No, because people spending so much time throughout the movie talking about we should be put in check and you know the government uh, we should be put under the UN. Where when the very history of the world created in these movies, people sh- you know people saying Captain America, why you're not in check? And Captain America should say, "Well, I've saved the world personally twice." Mm-hmm. With the Avengers, one and a half times more. You know, the half because Tony's responsible for almost destroying the second time around. And the last two times that government tried to put me in check, one of them was mistaken, and one of them was an outright evil conspiracy. Why should you trust me over the government? Because I'm Captain America. Which is his point. Well, like, that's a position that yeah, he takes. It's, it's, it's one of those things that, yeah, it's a point that is made via the history of the films, but once you try to put it into a discussion of, well... This movie is a metaphor for A, B, and C. You know, in the real world, you can't actually use that. So that's the thing. I think that the movie mm. is less of a metaphor and that that is why it's better than the comic. The issue with the comic at the time was that superhero registration was very clearly being used as a metaphor for the Patriot Act. I mean, I mean you could really? not Or gun control. Anything. or It could have been everything. It was opaque it was basically and like America under Bush. 
which somehow Miller ended up siding with. But that's a whole different story. We're not going to get into a review of the comic because we'll be here all night. The thing about the film, though, is that I didn't get the sense watching it, and granted I've only seen it once, but I didn't get the sense watching it that they were tying it to a specific theme or tone or parallel to the real world. The entire argument about the Sokovian Accords, which kicks off the story, is the notion that the Avengers are operating without any governmental oversight, to which, as you pointed out, Captain America has every reason in the world to get away from the, that. The big, the big thing, the big moment where this uh, mother to a dead student tells Tony Stark, well, my son died because of you. Now, she doesn't know. Apparently, nobody does that Tony Stark is responsible. She's actually right. <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't know. From her point of view, she's coming to a guy who saved the world from an evil robot and telling him, well, you're terrible because you didn't save yeah. enough people, which is stupid. And that was something that I had a huge problem no, but with. Nobody, again, nobody within the Avengers said, Tony, the only one who caused millions of people, well, we don't know how many people died. It's the Avengers movie, so probably like three people died. Yeah. Is you and again and nobody talks to the Scarlet Witch who actually chose from her own free will to join an evil terrorist organization designed to take over the world. She was a member of Cobra. Hi, no, 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 Cobra. Oh, Cobra. In the, mo- <laughs> in the movies, it was Cobra, including okay. the "We should surrender right away." Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. So no, and nobody ever tells her. Wait, wait, shouldn't you be in jail now? I mean, I know well, you've helped us, but you tried. You tried to murder us. You unleashed the Hulk. Yeah. On a city full of civilians. Oh, yeah. You're worse than Tony because Tony made a mistake, a mistake that was influenced apparently by Thanos, but he, again, he doesn't know that. Yeah. No, that makes sense on the one hand. On the other, I mean, you could always make the argument that the Scarlet Witch joining the Avengers, especially after Quicksilver's death, is a attempt at redemption. And yeah, again, fair, the, like the, the movie the, does att- her justice, I well, think. Well, there's, there's an attempt at redemption, and then there's this public acceptance apparently of somebody who is a known terrorist. She no, wasn't known, though. She the was fact known, that she, she was known to the government. Was she? Yeah. But the, you know, In there the was, Age of Ultron, to the best they, of They were memory. having this talk with uh, Kobe Smulders character. Uh, right. Maria Hale yeah. was saying to Captain America, you know, oh, he, these are the evil twins A and B. So but she was no, working for Fury at the time. No, at the second movie, she was working for Sark. She was part of the... She was like, part of a publicly traded company. Yeah. And she knew this. So apparently, it's not a spy stuff. It's something that... Could be gleaned. So again, I assume the government knows it. Interesting question. No, it's not interesting because the movie refuses to deal with it. No, it's interesting in the sense that we're supposed to be when when the, when the vision tells her you know, people will be afraid of you. We're supposed to sympathize with her. When the clear answer should be they should be because as far as most public mm-hmm. knows, this is a super powered ex terrorist. This is not the uh, reason. This is not somebody who was persuaded because she's a mutant. She was persuaded. Persuaded. Yeah. Pers- under pursued because she was a villain up until recently. Well, hang on. Let's mm. okay. So let's let's deal with the narrative flaws before we get into the positives, because okay. there are a few positives that yeah, I want to yeah, touch yeah. on. But let's start with sort of the central problem here. And spoilers. Let's yes, okay, okay. Let's talk about it. So the whole premise for this story is that the backlash to the Avengers has been built, presumably has been building up for a while. We don't really know anything about that, but it has been building up to the point where, in a confrontation, it's actually taken directly from the comic books, right? The Avengers confront Crossbones. Crossbones decides to blow himself up. The Scarlet Witch flings him into the air in an effort to save the people around her. Unfortunately, he explodes in midair and takes out an entire floor of a building. People die. She is assigned the blame for that. And this is the thing... On two levels, there are things that bother me here. First of all, 
specifically in relation to what happens in the plot, nobody ever says, what about the supervillains? Like, there's a scene in which the general... He was uh, the, stealing the general, biological weapons no, that could kill, I w- don't know, millions of w- people? When the case are, is made for the Avengers... Like, the, the incident that splits them is when the Secretary of State, who used to be Thunderbolt Ross... That's how you know you're dealing with a reasonable authority figure. Mm-hmm. It's Thunderbolt Ross, right? He shows up and he says, okay, you have to sign these accords. You have to go into the UN for three reasons. New York, Washington, Sokovia. All three of these were instigated by villains. And it's... No, no, no. Two of these were instigated by the same government that is trying now to put them under thumb. No, no, not true. Loki invaded New York and would have invaded... Who used the cube? Who called Loki? No, Loki was going to attack anyway. Uh, Well, they don't know. S.H.I.E.L.D. used the... No, there's an inevitability when you look at... I mean, again, like these arguments are meant to persuade us just as much as they're meant to persuade the people within the story so they're making okay new york was the avengers fault how so the chitauri would have invaded with loki whether or not they used the cube whether or not and like this thing was going to happen by the end of the loki uh, the first thor film right he goes flying off into the darkness presumably thanos picks him up and it goes from there right loki was already obsessed with earth just because of the events of that movie it had nothing to do with the avengers Washington was, again, a situation in which S.H.I.E.L.D. was overtaken by HYDRA. Nobody says anything about HYDRA in this film. Nobody brings up the fact that, that the destruction that was caused was, an, was the outcome of an attempt to stop greater destruction. And then Sokovia is really the only one that you can pin on an actual Avenger, but not all of them, because Tony created Ultron with Bruce in seclusion. Like there's and then no nobody brings it up. Exactly. There's no broader implication. Now I do like the and admittedly this is more subtext than text. I do like the idea that everything Tony does in this film is overcompensation for everything that he's been going yeah. through since Iron Man 3. We know that he's been having post traumatic stress disorder. We know that uh, Pepper leaves him. We know that you know, this confrontation with This is Ultron, the guy who in the first Avengers movie were, was saying to Captain America, you shouldn't trust the government, we should do everything yeah, by ourselves. Yeah, I privatize world peace. Yes. You can't the, have the Iron Man. Iron Man 2 was basically the most Iron Rendish film ever, including yeah. the actual movies based on Iron Rand. He was like, and, you can't have my armor. I'm not he, giving it to And he government. made a complete 180. And Captain America, well, Captain America did like 95% well, no, you, turn. You could just the guy who's following orders to, no, 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 we shouldn't follow orders. We should do what is right. But in that particular case, yeah. you could say that that was also something that he was struggling with in The Winter Soldier. Yes. Even before the Hydra reveal, when he, there's a scene with uh, uh, Peggy, mm. where he says, you know, I used to be able to follow orders, and now I don't know what I'm doing anymore that makes sense but my issue here is that beyond the the individual conflicts it's a situation where there seems to be a finger of blame pointed at these heroes for failing to save everyone right the idea here is that wanda is to blame for not saving everybody even though she did actually save lives. She prevented crossbones from exploding at ground level. Would have killed a lot more people. It's it's an expectation that is meant for DC heroes, not, not Marvel not heroes. Even that it's it's presented within the movie as you know the public and the governments are agog. When I would expect in the US at least a fifty fifty split because I could imagine the MSNBC crowd saying. Well, you know, US, you know, the Avengers represent U.S. intervention and uh, they kill people and it's wrong, but. One would think that the Fox audience, at least, would be for a guy called Captain America <laughs> going to a different country and ended up killing foreigners in the name of world peace. 
there's that. You know, it's, he, he wouldn't want that support, but he would get it, one, yeah. one or not. Although to also, be... it's a movie called Civil War, and in the comics it also wasn't really Civil War because all the civilians were together against superheroes. It was yeah. one voice. Although that's, the, that goes with like, in the Marvel movie, Universe. We don't actually get much of the public discourse at all. We get the government, we get that one mother blaming Tony, but actual voices on the street. Yeah. What do regular people think about Captain America? What do regular people think about Iron Man? Do they believe that they should be in check? Does anybody but say... But I was okay with that. Is, is the Marvel Universe version of Sean and Tom going on the internet for their political, <laughs> for their political non-comic podcast saying, well, we should trust Captain America, and then we're having our own civil war in the Marvel right. U- movies you... I was okay mm. with that. Well, see, that's... Again, that goes into the question of like the comics versus the films mm-hmm. in terms of what needed to go across and what didn't need to go across. Because I don't know that the civilian perspective was relevant here. Mm-hmm. This was an issue specifically when they set it up and saying, your problem is that world governments are not okay with you. Nobody's asking the civilians what they think, right? There's no great... Out- it's like these are heads of state and, and governments of the world that are not comfortable having this, you know, a body of, of multi you know, international group right. running around. Yeah, I think we're going... We'll we're, we're start going more on circles. We should probably mention that this in this movie there are superhero fights, which there are pretty are, cool. And they are qu- quite cool. You know, excellent. You know what the, the sense that I got from this film is? If we shift over to the... like. Mm. The positives, and we'll start with this. I got this was really. Mm. There were two ways this movie could have gone, right? It could have been r- fantastic, or it could have been like abysmal. Because every expectation we were talking about, like you know, generic expectations and industry expectations. You get the feeling that there are all of these characters going on, and I did not have a good time with Age of Ultron. Mm. And part of me was hoping that Civil War would be a corrective experience, and it was. And I was really happy about it because it felt like where Joss Whedon failed to use... To distinguish the characters properly? To distinguish the characters, to develop them, to, to, to do anything of value with them beyond just throwing Joke. them around and having them yeah. do all these things. The Russos managed to use the entire cast of the Marvel Cinematic Universe... Plus two extra. Well. Two plus two big extras. Yeah. yeah. And, and just like without feeling like... There was no sense that anybody was jammed in. One of, you remember one of our first episodes was when we heard the announcement that Spider-Man was joining Civil War. And I was not pleased about it because it was no. like, God, why are you jamming in artificially this character? And everyone's going to know that it's for purposes of marketing and it's not going to feel, you know, congruent to the story. It's going to be a big mess. And it was not. Them- one of the things that I liked thematically, and I think we're going to close the movie review soon because otherwise yeah. this podcast will last forever, <laughs> Sure, is the idea that despite this being a political thing, there, there's the saying within the movie, it always ends in a fight. What it should have been saying is it always ends up personally. And I hope, I think, I hope the Russos are aiming for this. Despite what uh, Captain America and Iron Man are saying, they're both not arguing about politics. It ended up being personal, and it ended up personal for anybody else besides them. It's like a symbolic representation of the idea that people are saying, well, my political opinion is A, B, and C. What they're actually saying is, well, I really like guy A and guy B. Why Spider-Man falls in with Tony Stark? Because he's Tony Stark. Oh, I'm a tech nerd. This is the guy I always admired, even before he had the cool iron suit, right? Mm -hmm. You can imagine young Peter Parker in this movie being a Stark fan. Looking up to a fellow inventor. And and, and why does Ant-Man fall with Captain America? Not because he cares about the politics of things. Oh, you're Captain America. I had your poster or whatever. You know, you're awesome. Which is, it's a terrible way to operate, but this is how real world politics, politics operate, right? Why do you vote Trump? He looks like a great guy, you know? 
You know, he looks like a nice guy. The crickets chirping at the end of that <laughs> sentence just no, should no, tell but, you everything. No, but whenever you ask somebody why do they yeah. vote for, and you, you get this thing of, well, he looked like a fun guy to have a beer with. That, yeah. That's a fun guy to have a beer with. That's because, not a fun guy to run the free world. Because when you talk mm-hmm. about political systems mm-hmm. with all of the intricacies that go into it, it gets so ridiculously complicated and no one person can address everything. I think, in fact, to be completely honest, I think the best thing that Civil War did was to take the politics out of the equation. There are no arguments here for do we need a supervillain Guantanamo Bay and do superheroes need to be government controlled? They do have one. Hmm? They actually have one. Uh, Yes, but it's the raft. Like, it's not the negative zone. No, it's underwater, sorry. And, and Technically, it's Namor, sovereign territory. It's like they they managed to skirt not turning Tony Stark into a fascist. Because when he does find this prison, he's pretty horrified. Well, he, he turns so, into a bit of an idiot. Which but, is better than but again, a fascist. You, it's like you, in this particular case, I felt like the, because, the movie, because it was relying on MCU history mm-hmm. and because it was moving forward, it did manage to make him... Not necessarily sympathetic. I don't know that anybody could be Team Tony in this movie because oh, of... Oh, there are. There are. Because of... There are. He, Trust them. You know, because of his motivations are suspect and, no, you know, he is more culpable than most. Okay. But on the other hand, they didn't make him the fascist that Mark Miller did. Yeah. So at least that happened. And I do want to say, just before we wrap everything up, Tom Holland was a revelation. I did not expect his Spider-Man to be as good as it was. And, you know, like, I'm saying this now to you with absolute shock. I'm really looking forward to Spider-Man Homecoming. I'm really, lo- I'm really looking forward job. for Chadwick Boseman's as the Black Panther. Oh, yes. You know, oh, yes. If, if Holland is a revelation, this guy is like the full-blown... Boseman, he's there. Boseman knocked it out of the park. It does seem like a huge miscalculation that the next movie is Doctor Strange and not Black Panther because... Hmm. We're going to have to wait two years for them to follow up on this. But he was amazing. Okay. Uh, we should go into other movie news because this is going to be right. our longest podcast event, ever. In any event, I just want to point out, you know, I very much enjoyed it. Yeah. It has its problems. I don't even think it's the best Captain America movie, but I'd say go see it. I'd say, like, of all the MCU movies, I'd probably place it second place. Mm. The narrative issue is one that's very hard for me to overcome. This expectation that superheroes need to be perfect. But... Again, it it also gives you confidence for Infinity War. Like, we know now that the Russos can juggle a very large cast without anybody feeling like... They will like, be the first uh, directors for Marvel who made more than two movies. And too well, I should mm. say. Uh, speaking of uh, the Russos... Yeah. They are going to produce, apparently, the Sex Castle movie. Oh, my. There's going to be a movie based on Sex Castle. We reviewed it, like, what, ten episodes ago? ago? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great comic book, uh, gonna be directed by the people who do the Happy Endings TV show, mm. which I have not watched but gets some really good reviews. It has a huge fan base. Mm. I'm not sure what I think about this. I, I love the comic. Now, what I want to know is are they casting the actual actors? Yeah, because one of the, one of the appeals of the comic <laughs> book is that the villain, the antagonists are based on famous 1980s, uh, well, action stars and Hulk Hogan. This was 70s less- and 80s. So you can't you can't really cast because most of these people. Can't you? No, because some of them are dead. Okay, you don't have to have everybody, but it's like this would be a lot less also after you, the Expendables. Do you, do you really want Hulk Hogan to get a role now that we know what we know about Hulk Hogan? No, but again, mm-hmm. like you're talking about individuals here. It's like one of the major characters there is the Sylvester Stallone analog, 
And as long as... Like, well, he's because, not a major, he's just one of the guys. Yeah. And most of them won't, you know, won't agree to appear in what I assume is a pretty minor movie as the villains will get killed to show how cool the hero is. If Jean-Claude Van Damme was willing to well, put down his ego, well, it's yeah, like, again... Because or, Jean, Jean-Claude Van Damme was just nominated for an Oscar last year. Sylvester Stallone was. And, which just goes to show you... And I don't think Wesley Snipes could give in on his ego. From what I know about him publicly. I don't know. It, it's an interesting to be, question. To be the boastful guy who, who's proven to be a young... Well, he can't be the... He, in, the, in the book, he's like the young punk who's trying to prove himself and fails. He's not young. He's like 50 now. Yeah. Right? Okay, whatever. It, I'm, it, I'm it not, can be done. Th- now, th- it can be done. Because part of the one humor of the, with Sex Castle is that you do identify these henchmen as popular. Yeah. It's like, if you don't have that, I don't know why you yeah, bother. And, well, one of the charms of the comic is it's very cartoonish and you can sort of do them without being... It's not a true-to-life representation. It's just, oh, yeah, I recognize that guy. It's obvious when you see them. You don't, they don't even have to name names. Like, oh, yes, it's this guy and this guy and this guy. Is it guy. live action? Yeah. Oh, That's crap. the thing. It's like, why? Okay. It could be just a fun, you know, comedy action romp, but we already mm-hmm. had Hot Fuzz. And, yeah. and the comic was the closest thing to Hot Fuzz you... You get on a comic page, I'd say. No, but also the the charm of Sex Castle is that it's not the typical... Like, it's not the Expendables. Mm. You know, it, it has something... It has it's, a very tongue-in-cheek... It's, it's the reverse Expendables, because yeah. they all end up actually expended. Exactly. It's it, There's a sensation there of... That this is very, you know, cynical mm. on the one hand, but also very nostalgic. And I don't know if you could pull that off if this just became sort of a generic action film. Now, where... they are talking about a guy called Blake Anderson to play the title character when... If you're not going to get Kurt Russell, really, what's the point? That's oh, the... my God. I mean, really. That's oh, that's no. actually... That's him, right? It is. Oh, it's, not... it's literally <laughs> Kurt Russell. It's literally Kurt Russell. Oh, my God, it is. You're right. And he can do it. He, he's a a he's still a great actor, and B he can still do action. Yeah, beats. yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, and his profile is probably going to come up if he, you know, if he does this Guardians of the Galaxy thing. So like, mm. people will know, will remember well, who he people is. People know him. You know, ah, what's he been in lately? The Hateful Eight, Bone Tomahawk. Meh. Well, he was in Fast and the Furious Seven, which made like a billion. Everybody dollars. Everybody was in Fast and the Furious Seven. Yeah. It's like you can't distinguish anybody that way. Um, uh, other movie news. Yeah, irredeemable. Irredeemable. Speaking of Marvel, again, speaking of Marvel movies, Adam McKay is slated to helm mm-hmm. the boom, the adaptation of Boom Studios, uh, Mark Wade and Peter else? Cross. Peter Cross, Irredeemable, which was What If Superman Was Evil? Which really, I think, I mean, In why bother? Of, we already have Men of Steel. Now, we had, that, was the be- that was the worst case we scenario. We had a whole sloth, What If... X was evil in the mid-2000s. We had The Boys. We had Black Summer. We had Super God. We had Super Gods. We had uh, No Hero. Warren Ellis did like 50,000 of them. Warren Ellis did most and, of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I thought Irredeemable, I've read like half of it, and I thought it was fine because Mark Wade is a good enough of a writer. I never really bought into the, okay, what you're saying, you know, the big metaphor it. I never just bought it. Mm-hmm. It was fine because Mark Wade knows how to write an interesting plot, and there were a lot of unexpected twists uh, there. It did go off the rails. At some oh point. yeah, at some point the Oof. twist became a bit too much. Oh, here's a big shock, and here's a big shock. But uh, you started uh, shamalining it up. No, not not to that level. But there there are some there are some very interesting beats there, and some things you literally couldn't expect that are like, oh, that's amazing. Like when yeah. uh, what's his name, Xavier, reveals his true power for the first time. Like, mm-hmm. well, that makes total sense. Good for you. That's like a good, you know. Or good... when uh, Mobius is revealed, yeah, where he is. 
Okay. So, uh, yeah. uh, but I imagine it more as a TV show because the, 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 yeah. there's a lot of plot for Irredeemable. There's, you know, a trilogy of movies worth of plot, but I, I don't know what they'll do with it. You know, if they're gonna, if, if you're gonna try to condense the whole thing into one movie, it's, you know, a superhero goes bad, kills people, he stopped the end. Yeah. Which is not very interesting. No, I, I'm guessing that a movie like that would bank a lot on the destruction scenes. But again, like having seen Man of Steel, yeah. we're really not yeah, Also, another scene. thing we should probably say, it's Deadpool's fault or at uh, least not, not fault. You know, not necessarily fault. It's for Deadpool that we get this movie that has to be R-rated, right? I'm assuming so based on what happens. <laughs> he kills kids, for God's sake. I mean, it's in the very be... first page. Yeah, it's going to be rated R. He baby. murdered his teenage psychic in the very yeah, first page. He incinerated uh, a baby at some yes. point. And um, what's, there's a scene where like he finds out that his arch-villain... At this point, I was already like, on no, the no, way out. No, 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 that's, that's, that's not spoiled because the arch-villain thing is a very nice reveal. It is a nice reveal, but he finds out at some point that like... The, uh, it's sort of like the Lex Luthor analog of building evil, irredeemable robots. Mm-hmm. But then he finds out Wh- that, like, why why he, he was building them. Yeah, and, and it's, it's like that's rated weird. R. That's rated R. Like yeah. you can't. Nobody's going to be talking about like you know. Uh, uh, but again, if, if it's a film, two and a half hours. I don't know. Uh, anything else, movie world wise? No. We're good to move on for TV. Okay. Uh, it's been a slaughterhouse. <laughs> the apocalypse has risen. Speaking of, you know, superheroes dying <laughs> off left oh and right. God. Okay, so let's take it one step at a time. We'll start with ABC. Mm-hmm. ABC made the unfortunate decision to cancel Agent Carter, which, I'll be honest, I would be more upset about if season two hadn't been so bad. Mm. Just awful. Now, to be fair, it's one more season people were expecting because it was originally just a miniseries, right? Yeah. And the first season holds up, and it's pretty good, so like I can enjoy that on its own. Okay. I'm still sort of sad that they didn't get a chance to redeem themselves after the second season, because it was a miscalculation. But okay. the other thing is that ABC has also passed on, for the second time, the most wanted spinoff of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. This is the Mockingbird thing. Marvel's because... least wanted spinoff. It really is. It makes you wonder. Like Marvel are not doing well in TV land. They're well, really not. Like, in, the Netflix in, thing in, is their in, own... In Networks TV land. Yeah. yeah. But th- that seems weird. That they're not able to compete with DC on the level of, you know... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is still going on because Disney is going to put inertia, as much money because in Because of inertia. Yeah. Just money at that point. And also... Like, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., as far as I know, has also given up the ghost completely in terms of having well, see, any See, I haven't watched it since the middle of season one, so I it's, have no idea what's going it, on there. No, because, like, Inhumans are off the, the schedule for the films, so whatever they've been building up to... And the last two seasons have been setting up the Inhumans? Yeah. Hmm. And as far as I know, there's also a thing now where, like, Civil War happened and the show isn't acknowledging it. So, basically, we're... There's no illusion anymore. It's an Elseworlds. Pretty much. At this point. Well, not even an Elseworlds. It's just like inconsequential. It's a what if. It's a what, what if. It's a why bother, not a what <laughs> if. <laughs> That's what it is. It's like... It, it, it's Marvel's a bunch of, why bother. It's a bunch uh. of stale, poorly written characters who are not having any impact because nobody wants to see anything with them anymore. Um, and all of this is going on. And then every other attempt to sort of branch out and become a television parallel to the cinematic universe just fails repeatedly and i find that really bizarre maybe it's down to like the mismanagement of perlmutter and we know that jeff loeb is running things that well we'll we'll see when cloak and dagger comes out (sighs) maybe because maybe the basis was rotten 
the Marvel Universe has the Iron Man movies as the basis, so they managed to build on, on that. The Marvel Network TV was meant to be built on Agent Shield, which yeah. is a shaky base. Exactly. The fact that Netflix the doesn't acknowledge it The foundations are rotten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Netflix, for example, is building everything on the backs of Daredevil, so like it... And not acknowledging S.H.I.E.L.D. in any way. Mm. So that seems to be like a completely separate thing. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what... I sort of imagine everybody else in the Marvel Cinematic Netflix universe viewing S.H.I.E.L.D. as like Keystone Cops. They're like running around like headless chickens and there's this uh, music in the... Uh, what's the British comedian guy? Uh, Benny Hill? Yeah. The, the yakety sax like, thing? Da, 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 da. Oh, oh, and they're doing this inhuman stuff? And, and you know, and Captain America is like scratching his head. What are these people doing there? I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. DC, however, has mm-hmm. been fearing... Sl- well, I don't know... Okay, so this could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you interpret it. Supergirl has been renewed. She has also been booted from her network to CW. Now, this was explicitly due to budget and ratings. Mm -hmm. The weird thing here, though, is that I have never heard of a scenario in which a show jumps networks due to low ratings and survives. Because the CW renew everything. (laughs) Yeah, Angel survived one season after the jump. Well, Buffy survived like two free seasons, right? Well, they they went from UPN. They left CW mm. for UPN and then... Mm. Um, but this, this is just like very weird. You would think that... Lo- because low ratings took out Constantine. Mm-hmm. Supergirl seems to be held to a different standard. I'm not sure why. Well, it's apparently more expensive show to make than Constantine. Because Constantine is... But CW isn't exactly rolling in money either. So why... And now like... Well, they own the other DC TV shows, right? So they maybe do. it's an attempt to consolidate the base of... I wouldn't be surprised. But then... See, like I'm, I'm trying to sort of parse it and it doesn't make any sense to me. DC or Warner Brothers, I should say, would have given Supergirl to NBC regardless, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were the ones who made that offer rather than give her to the CW from the beginning this is a lifeline like this is an attempt to keep the show on the air by transferring her to a network that is much more hesitant about axing properties even when they really need to go case in point arrow but um i and so like part of this might have been the crossover like there was a flash supergirl crossover where he jumps into her world and presumably if she comes back now, like, they'll find some way to fit her into the CW-verse, which is fine. Like, that's not necessarily Super a bad Boy thing. Punch reality. We're going to start having crisis on multiple Earths now. It's going to happen. Well, since I don't watch these shows, I don't care. You're not missing much. I, yeah. I, I dropped out of uh, Flash. When even uh, the idea of a live-action Gorilla Grodd can bring you to a TV show, something that's, is yeah. wrong. Yeah, Grodd, Grodd was good, but... Grodd enough. is good. Not enough. You know, uh, uh, it's, it's anything else in TV world? No, just I guess congratulations to WB for consolidating. They are the not officially the DC network, right? I they should just change the name I from mean, WB Smallville, to DC. Smallville, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, Legends of Tomorrow, Supergirl, Flash. Flash. They have um, there was this Vixen miniseries. Vixen, she's showing up too. Um, there's something else from the th- in the works? I don't know. I mean, look, it seems to be working for them. I might not 
appreciate it as yeah. a viewer. Like, it, they lost Yeah, me. We, we hated Smallville, but it lasted for ten seasons, so right. somebody was watching. Exactly. Like, th- there's justification there. Some poor Will soul tied to a chair like Alex in uh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Just and, like, my God. And to be honest, Flash and Supergirl have the same showrunner anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to imagine that, like, this is going to be a huge transformative huh, event. Showrunner. Oh, Greg Berlanti? No, no, oh, no. the Flash. I see what you see. did there. Okay. <laughs> you did it. Ah. Unintentionally. Shall we okay. go into the previews? Previews. These are the July previews yes. that we would have Again. talked about uh, two weeks ago. So, but... Marvel, I have got nothing. I, I have minus nothing, is, is what I have. Because what happens was the that... Civil War II, uh, the Revenge of the Return, <laughs> and last month there were at least some one-shots that I could talk about. Some nice reprints of, you know, classic material yeah. here. I got nothing. The only thing I can tell you about Civil War Two is because that they, uh, uh, Hellcat has joined mm. the, the tie-ins, and so has Py- Power Man and Iron Fist, which means I've dropped them both. That's, that's that was quick. Minus yes. two. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all I've got. So uh, screw Marvel. DC, more rebirth, more uh, of the same. Uh, the one thing I want to mention is uh, Bad Girl One by Hope Larson and Raphael Albuquerque. We've mm-hmm. just we've talked about it when they first announced this. The, some, some of the more interesting creative teams. Yeah, the ones where they're not just reshuffling people. See, my issue here with with mm-hmm. these rebirth announcements specifically because there are some books that I have to admit are potentially interesting. Jin Wen Yang is doing this uh, the new Superman. Chinese Superman yeah. and uh, Hope Larson's doing Batgirl. These are things that under normal circumstances mm. I would be like, you know what? Let's check them out. My problem here is that I already jumped on this train when it was DCU and I got burned and all of the books that I was reading got cancelled. So I have no reason to trust that this is going to last. Midnighter's last issue just came out last week, I think, and pissed me off. It was good. It was a good finale, but it was also the sensation that there is no reason on earth that this book needed to be canceled. Other than, here's our new desperate creative shift. So, yeah, Gene Wen Yang writing a Chinese Superman under any other circumstances, I would be on board. But you're telling me that it's under DC Rebirth? Why the hell should I even care? Within 12 months, it's going to be some other event that ends up derailing him. I don't even know if he'll stick around after that. Why should I get invested? Like, it's opposite problems for the big two, but they're both, like, extreme in their problems. Well, I just got Marvel is doing this crossover that runs over everything. DC is just constantly rebooting and throwing away all of the books that could interest people. Well, I just got used to the idea of a run being a 12-issue thing, at most. It just seems like a waste of time to me. No, I don't think so. 12 issues, I, I can live with that. 12, like, look... I appreciated what Steve Orlando did with Midnighter, but I will also say that he barely scratched the surface of what could have been done with his character. The same goes for Grayson. Yeah. You know, Grayson peters out towards the end anyway because King and Celia aren't even writing it right now. This, uh, the, the, the other two writers are sort of like wrapping up their yes. arc and it's not good. But I'm saying there is so much more that could have been done with this setup. This could have lasted for years. And the notion that you're sort of truncating it and that every time you barely have enough time to get invested before the next big shakeup. So Hope Larson on Batgirl. Why should I? Why? What is the point of me even reading this? Have some hope. For what? For I, hope. No, but <laughs> hope for hope. Listen, I, Hope Larson should get work. She's a talented creator. 
she should absolutely, anyone who's willing to take her on will not be disappointed in the results. But I don't have the energy, like, because I was into Babs Tars and Cameron Stewart's well, uh, that back row. for like 20 issues, right? Sure. In the middle of Futures and Crossover and Convergence and all of these other things. Like, you had to sort of read around the events anyway. And now, well, like... That mostly stood on its own. There wasn't too much into it. It's not like Marvel when they actually stopped the plot, just really some fill-in issues that you could avoid easily. They're and not doing also, that anymore, though. And also, since it's drawn by Rafael Albuquerque, who is a mm-hmm. big name for the general audience, you know, because people here, you know, people here Hope Larson, and it's usually the, the alternative pro- crowd who wouldn't touch DC with a 12-foot stick. They hear Rafael Albuquerque, and they're like, oh, oh. So hopefully it will have enough of a base audience to survive for longer than it otherwise would. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I've given up. One thing that is actually just right length, yeah. uh, Wonder Woman True Amazon Hardcover. It's a Wonder Woman graphic novel by Jill Thompson. Written and drawn. Standalone? Standalone. I'll pick it up. Uh, there you go. It, but like, again... I should, I, should, I should just mention, I really love the fact that they publish it as a Wonder Woman that's ready to appeal to a white audience, which is basically... <laughs> <a> <laughs> Which is an admittance for, that for the last 70 years she of Wonder Woman publishing, she was appealing to a um, very, 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 very minor audience. I mean, look. Here's a Wonder it, Woman that children could like. It goes to show you, though, <laughs> how they like they don't get it. The only nice thing that most people had to say about Batman v Superman was that Gal Gadot stole the show as Wonder Woman. And that there is a high interest in seeing her on film. Now, if you are unable to translate that into, hey, come and read a Wonder Woman book that is like that, that has this awesome female protagonist who can kick all kinds of ass and, and do a, if you can't capitalize on that, then what are you even doing? Well, it's, it's the same company that didn't have a Supergirl book when the actual uh, Supergirl TV show came out. I know. And, like, the show succeeds, or I guess relatively succeeds, depending on how you... It has more viewers than the comics has readers. <laughs> because the comics right. has no readers, because yeah. there is no comics. You know, so, like, it, 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 this failure to capitalize, mm-hmm. not to say that, like, the DCCU is some big accomplishment so far, but, like, you haven't even managed to do that yet. So, I don't... If Jill Thompson wants to write Wonder Woman, it's like, I, I, I like Jill Thompson, and I could pick a graphic novel off the wall and not get frustrated, but like you're telling me they're doing ongoings. These ongoings could be good. I'm not saying that they're not. You know, Hope Larson's good. Jean Lan Yang is good. I just don't. I am the not. The trust going to is advocate. not there. But I'm not going to advocate paying for this. Yeah, it's two ninety nine. They are holding the the line for now for two ninety nine. That's still not enough for me to say. You know, maybe it'll work out in the long run because I know that it won't. So, pshht, it's the same people who are running the show. We have to remember that. Whether it's Convergence, or DCU, or Rebirth, or Afterbirth, or Miscarriage, or whatever comes up afterwards, we have to remember. It's Dan DiDio, it's Jim Lee, it is still these same people. Bob Harris, the same editorial group. Eddie Braganza. I was trying not to mention him. He should turn into Voldemort where people just like don't mention his name. It's that one. But yeah, like it's the same team. Why do you think – why should anyone have the expectation that they are somehow going to magically quantum leap in their thinking and then make different decisions than they have made up until now? For what? It just doesn't make any sense. Screw DC.
Image? Image. Finally, something good to talk about. Uh, you go ahead. All I know, right. I know there's the thing you want to talk about. There's so much that I want to talk about here. So let's start with Snot Girl number one. That was announced a year ago. Wasn't it? I think Yeah, the... yeah. We've talked about it when they did the Image Expo last year. Yeah. yeah. It's Brian Lee O'Malley and Leslie Hung. Mm-hmm. It's a comedy about a social media star who has these really gross allergies that debilitate her. I mean, look, it's Brian Lee O'Malley. At the very least, it's going to be interesting. Right? Uh, I don't his, know what... It's his first ever ongoing, right? I think it is. Yeah, Scott because Pilgrim he, was a series of He had graphics. Lost in the Sea, which was a graphic novel, then Seconds. Scott Pilgrims, and then Seconds. Yeah, he only did graphic novels. I think he can handle it, though. Mm. The thing about Seconds is that, like, if you wanted to, you could chop it up into series. Mm-hmm. And, like, it would make sense, because he, he writes in a very clear, structured style. I'm in for it. I mean, the subject matter seems it, a bit it, bizarre. <laughs> it'll also be the first thing that he's doing that he's not drawing, right? Yeah. Let's because he had art assist on second, right? He yeah. had an inker and a colorist. But it was still his yeah, pencils. Yeah. His pencils. It's it, bound to be interesting, if nothing else. Yeah. And it's a very strange series. It is. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a very strange you don't premise. Think, it's, it's very premised that, like, any other creator, you would be like, uh, I don't know. But then a you're gross saying, out comedy. It's about Brian Lee O'Malley. It's like, okay, so he's going to take this into like the Scott Pilgrim and Seconds level of humor where it's sort of like bizarre, but the bizarreness is what makes it work. So I'm down for that. Uh, Throwaways hmm. by, uh, Caitlin Kittredge and Steven Sanders. Uh, I know her from somewhere, Caitlin Kittredge. I know that name. I, then it's, I, I didn't Google. Tongue. I didn't Google it. I'm not sure. Anyway, the plot is that uh, Abby Palmer and Dean Logan are two broken people. Abby, a vet with severe PTSD, Dean, a burnout trying to escape the shadow of his infamous funder, and they are thrust into the world of uh, modern day MK Ultra conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it's a government experiment thing. Um, <sighs> Kidridge's name. Mm. Rung a bell for me, so I will check this out. Even though I'll admit openly that the premise it seems sounds a, little... a bit nineties. Meh. Yeah, like we're doing this whole secret. Oh, agent okay. Thing. So I've googled her, and if it's the same one, she's the author of a dark fan- series of dark fantasy uh, novels, Nocturne City, the oh, Iron, the Iron Codex. Okay, okay. You've read them? Uh, I've read the first one of the Iron Codex. It was pretty good. Mm. Uh, so, oh, okay, all right, okay. Um, yeah, so that, that might actually work oh, out. Oh, she, she did Coffin Hill. I didn't That's like... That's where we know her from. I didn't really like we Coffin Hill. We didn't like Coffin Hill Well, I much. haven't read a lot of it, But so. I do like her novel. Well, listen, Coffin Hill could have been a bluff. We don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, but worth well, looking into. you know, though, writers, you know, actual, you know, book writers going into comics over yeah. the last few years, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, Lauren Bukes. Well. Yeah, I mean... I've, I've just Lauren started, I've just started reading the the second Lauren Bukes novel, uh, Zoo City, and it's so good. And then I and I think this could have been a great comic. And then I read Remember Survivors, Survivors Club. Club like I uh, even went back to Survivors Club after like the fourth mm-hmm. or fifth issue and be like, you know, maybe I, I give her like a bad rap. Maybe we misjudge her. We did not misjudge uh, her. Yeah, it's just, mm-hmm. it was pretty bad. But okay, you know, yeah. easy come, easy go. Uh, Horizon number one. This okay. is by Brandon Thomas, Juan Gideon, and Frank Martin. They are reversing the planetary invasion scenario. Zia is an alien that comes to Earth on a mission of retaliation after Earth has invaded her homeworld. One of the things that jumped out at me here is that we've been talking about how Image was in danger of falling into a rut with their science fiction stories specifically, falling on the same premises and the same basic setup again and again. This is a reversal of a pretty typical scenario. Mm -hmm. So at the very least, I'm interested in seeing... 
where they're going. Well, with this. Earth, Brandon Earth Thomas, invading other planets is also at this point it's it's a subversion that's so usual. It's basically not Avatar. As a, not as, mm, yes, but Avatar. Avatar was dumb. It, it's it's so well it used that the second Old Man War novel started with it as a joke. With, you know, mm. the invasion and then it ends with the alien saying, damn humans. Sure, but you're talking about specific works here. Like, well, it's yeah, not, it's, it's a pretty thing. It's not as common as, you as say, the Ur-trope of the alien invasion. Well, right? yeah, but, you know, the, the opposition f- of the Ur-trope is still enough of a trope by itself. Yeah, but mm. I think that it's fresh enough, especially, like, with image specifically... That there might be something here. Brandon Thomas is okay. I can't say that I've had a whole lot of experience with his work. No. But, you know, it could work out. Um, the Hunt number 1 by uh, Colin Lorimer with art by Lorimer and Joanna Lufuenta. This one, I just, I have no idea what it's about. It's just, you know, a series oh. of verbs of, you know, in the mysterious world of the dead, <laughs> the dead will rise. The, yeah. the thing that's interesting about that it's is so that, Im- no, no, it's not just that. Image of the series called Hunt that ended like three years ago. Did they? Yes. I, I... By, by Kirkman, of all people, I believe, who is a pretty big name. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like they had, they had Savior and then they had Saviors. About roughly I a feel year like apart. Gandalf right now. I have no memory of this place. <laughs> it's the forgotten one. Wow. I think Rob Life okay. will draw like three issues of it. Maybe that's why you've d- never bothered to remember it. Mm, so it's like really hunt good. and the pretty hunt. good reason. Yeah, but what are you doing with it other than the fact that it's the Wild Hunt? Because yeah, okay, I know the Wild Hunt. Mm-hmm. You know the Wild Hunt. People who read Hellboy know the Wild Hunt. Most people don't know the Wild Hunt. Well, to be fair, when Image they don't do horror very often, but when they do, they tend to. Be decent and you say least. that only because witches come once a year. <laughs> like the second arc of witches, witches will be completed. Only come once a year. <laughs> you know, witches come. <laughs> an issue of witches comes out just about as the actual wild hunt takes place, <laughs> when the moon is full and the stars are aligned. Whatever. <sighs> and you know. Well, Chu 56 kicks off the last story arc. I just thought you would want to... Chu, uh, I, I haven't read volume 11 yet, which collects uh, 50 through 55. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, 51 through 55. 50 was just amazing. This is the big finish. And listen, I got to give them credit. Uh, very few image series make it I that I think high. it's the longest running image series of the, of the independence, right? Because you had your Savage Dragon. Like your the Spawn non-Kirkman like, stuff. Yeah. Oh right, Walking Dead. What? what walking Dead is like Walking Walking Dead is over a hundred. Invincible is over a hundred. Is it past one fifty? The Walking Dead by now. I'm thinking. I'm it pretty is. sure it has. Yeah, because but it like, has this weekly phase for a while. Yeah, but if you take uh, Kirkman out of the equation, then well, it's like, not fair taking Kirkman. Well, no, he's the biggest gun. But because he's mm-hmm. the editor in chief, it's like okay, it, like there would be justification for continuing it regardless. I'm saying like in terms of the other ongoing series, I can't think of anyone that's and lasted. also. Maybe uh, like revivals hint, at 40. Yeah, and hint for other uh, image creators. It's been going on like a clockwork, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 60 issues. And, you know, they had a month for two break every once in a while, but they also had the Poyo one-shots. Yeah. And Layman knew and, that it would be 60 issues. And it helped them. Because they were always on time, you know, the interest was still there. And when people, you know, people are dropping from the Moffat series, it's a thing. But they haven't dropped to the point where they're losing money per issue. So, um, Chu, one of the biggest success stories of Image. Yeah. And rightfully so. One last bit of curio, mm-hmm. curious news from Image mm-hmm. that just caught my eye and made me wonder why. Odyssey is getting an adult coloring book. 
So it goes. I need you to explain this to me, Tom, because I don't understand. I, well, Odyssey is getting a coloring book. Odyssey, not like Revival, not Chew, not uh, uh, Rat Queens. Odyssey. Odyssey was a really roughly colored book. How? But I mean, how would you color Odyssey? I mean, setting aside like the fact of of because the, why? It, I, no, it's a very professionally <laughs> colored book. It's like. Do they want to break people's arms? I and don't know. It's like, how would you color something like that? What are they going to do? On a computer, The no? shift shifts with all the, like, blurs of blue and... It's oh. colored on a computer, I believe, right? I don't know, but uh, my well, God. Uh, it, we didn't really like this series, but it was very pretty. It was very pretty. It was, but it begs the question of, like, you know, when you turn it into a coloring book... It's not a fun project. It's a challenge. No, it's like that's the sort of thing you it's like a as 20, a punishment. It's like a twenty, it's like a twenty thousand puzzle pieces. Draw this threefold cover of like you know Odyssey. Oh God, um, but you know, so that's the thing that's going to happen. Uh, I think you should start with Dark Horse sure. for the big graphic novel announcement, right? What have you got? I, I thought you would want to talk about uh, Angel Catbird. Angel a, Catbird, Margaret Atwood, a graphic novel by Margaret Atwood. Sure. Well, we talked about this when she announced it. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, a guy, author... who, a guy who is like part cat and part bird and part angel. It seems atypically humorous for her because she's not that kind of writer. But on the other you hand... Mean the like, one who can actually make me crack a smile? No, she's not. No. I've never smiled reading a Margaret Atwood book. I mean, I, I'm more of a fan of her than you are, but I will admit that like her works that's, are not... Again, that's not a difficult bar to cross. Being more of a fan of Margaret Atwood than I am <laughs> would require you to... Yeah. Enjoy a word. You know, so I, I, I like her well enough. I'm sorry, I just don't like Margaret Atwood. That's writing. fair. That, that's completely fair. The premise here, though, makes it sound like this could... Maybe she's been, like, holding on to a joke for, like, 50 years. No, and it sounds she's like... ready to cut loose. I, I don't think it's a joke. It sounds like young adultish, which is... Angel Catbird. Yeah. She's she's half... The guy's half cat, half bird. Half angel. And half angel. That doesn't even work out mathematically. Like, there's gotta be a gag. She here. watched that South Park episode with Al Gore and the men were painting. <laughs> that makes perfect. And she took it seriously. Um, I'm drawn by, uh, Johnny Christmas, which you yeah. probably mentioned because. And know, Tamara Bundle on mm-hmm. colors. You know, it, it, it could be good. I'm, I'm going to read it. I'm going to pick it up. It, it, you never know. Uh, anything else? Well, Black Hammer is back. So this was the Jeff Lemire, Dean Ormston ongoing that was put on hold because Ormston had health issues. Mm. They seem to be back on track now. It's about uh, elderly heroes who are trying to escape the retirement reservation they've been stuck on. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Welcome to Tranquility, which yeah, I was not to, happy with. Welcome to Tranquility had a very odd bent to it because it started as a pure gag comic and then went into a very, you know, darkly serious road. This one seems to be starting out serious, so you know it had the tone more set up. Yeah, and you and, know I always have time for Jeff Lemire. Yeah, just like as first issue, you might as well give it a try. Bounty number one out of ten. Mm, it's okay. a it's a mini series <clears throat> by Curtis Wabe and Mindy Lee. Okay, we're not even going we to talk about the this. plot. We're going to talk about Curtis Wabe. We have to do this. Yeah, uh, problem with finishing stuff. Yeah, because uh, Red Queens is on hiatus after. Three arcs. And the third arc was, by his own admission, mm-hmm. lackluster. Uh, Pisces ended after three issues. It didn't end, it just stopped being Cancel. published. No, that was a cancellation, mm-hmm. I think. I think image. Not even a, a full arc. Yeah. It's just three issues and it's gone. And, uh, what's his face? Uh, Peter, Peter Pan 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 Pan
Actually, the situation with Peter Panzerfaust is even more annoying now than it was before because what Curtis Jabuby has said was that it used to be, they were missing two episodes. It was supposed to be 25 issues. Yes. They stopped at 23. There was supposed to be two more. What they've said is that they're going to condense these two issues into like issue 24, which is going to be double length. Yeah. And it'll have the finale. So we're really only missing one issue and that still hasn't come out. Yeah. So that's even worse. But Again, it's the image problem of when you give the creators the free range. Well, no. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a free range issue. I'll tell you why. What Weeby said is that he, when Racklings went on hiatus, he put out a statement saying that the reason that the third arc had like very rough writing and wasn't particularly well done was because he was citing emotional exhaustion and burnout due to the controversy with Rock Up Church. Yeah. Fair is fair. Fair enough to a point, but the problem here, and this this is completely something personal, like I'll understand if you don't agree with me on this, but the same announcement, the same announcement where he's talking about emotional exhaustion and being burnt out and he's really tired and that's why the writing has suffered, ended with, but don't forget, Bounty's coming out in Dark Horse. I'm like, okay. First of all, screw you. Because, because... Independent of the circumstances, right? I understand that n- none of these three books failed because Weeby did something wrong. That's not it. Well, right? he wrote Pisces. That was wrong. Pisces was pretty bad. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that. But he didn't decide to stop. Like, this wasn't an Alice Cole situation where he's just like, eh, I don't feel like writing it anymore. That oh, was, no, this no. wasn't that, that. That's not the thing with Alice Cole, but okay. That's what he said about material. I no, he said, I lost tons of money and I can't allow myself to continue supporting it. Uh, what? There was some talk about oceans there. I don't know. I don't want to get into Alice Cole oh, right Sean. now. Anyway, so that much is, you know, uh, to say that none of these are his fault is fair enough, but... You're citing mental exhaustion as a reason for putting your most popular series on hiatus for something that's been over and done with, like, Upchurch hasn't been around for a year and change now because he was gone in the middle of the second arc. They just finished the third. They went with Stefan Sedgwick. Sedgwick got sick. Uh, they brought in uh, Tess Fowler. Now Fowler's out. Oh. Mess, mess, mess. See, now, all of this, I'm willing to say, okay, this is just like the we fate. Don't, we also don't know you. what the thing is happening beyond the background because Upchurch is off drawing the series, but he's still co-owner. So there could be problems there. He could be saying, well, yeah. I don't, because if Upchurch is suddenly saying, well, I don't approve this direction, what are you going to do? No, he doesn't have any, any say in that. I, I think he, I, I don't think Because so. it's still published as created by Rock Upchurch and Curtis J. Webby. Yes. Webby didn't buy all the rights. But Image hold the, Image hold the no, publica- no, no, no. publication, not no, the publication. Okay, yeah. but the creation rights. And he there can't was, veto it. And there was a talk about a TV show. And I imagine that you know, in the middle of this, discovering that the artist is uh, an abusive husband, and you know sure. he's going away and he's coming back, and God knows what. It. I don't blame him. Sure. What now regarding but the bounty thing? That's part of it, right? It's like okay, now you're saying a new series. I'm like, look. Fool me once, shame on me. Twice, three times, you start feeling like maybe I'll wait okay. for the trade. <laughs> well, A, yes, but B, again, that's a Dark Horse series. And Dark Horse are not a late publisher. Dark, one of the problems with Image, you know, it's, it, one of the good things is that the creators have their rights and they can do what they want and usually it ends up with better comics than most other companies. The bad thing is the creators have their rights and when you give the creator too much freedom, they tend to like, 
hang themselves, right? Mm. They get delays. And also, if the book loses money at Image, the creator loses money. Okay. And usually that ends up either with super late books because they have to take a break and work on something for Marvel or DC or IDW or whatever to make ends meet. Or the book is just getting, ends up getting canceled because, sorry, I just can't afford it. With Dark Horse, you know, he owns some of the rights, I assume, because it's not, it's, it's announced as a self-owned book, but, you know, Dark Horse has more power over it and they can pay him and they can pay the artist. Mm-hmm. Because in most image books, as much as I know, if the writer announces a project and chooses an artist, if it's not a, you know, a double team thing, he has to pay him from his own pocket, and it's not cheap. No, not from his own pocket, from the sales of the book. Well, yeah, but often, yeah. Often, it takes such a long time for you to get a residual check that for the first six months or so, hmm. you have to give in, I don't know, $100 plus per page out of your own pocket. See, I, I understand all those considerations from the point of view of looking behind the curtain, as it were, and you know, recognizing yeah, 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 the circumstances. Yeah, you know, as a reader, you have the right as to say... As a saying, reader, I'm saying, like... Why, I, sh- why should I trust you to yeah, finish like, this project? Why, why should I believe that I will get what you are charging for this because it's $4 an issue? 40 pages for the first. Well, 40 pages. Well, f- fine. Fair mm-hmm. enough. You know, if the next issue is uh, 30 pages in three box, down, or, okay. it's fine. But it's like, okay, you're asking me to go on this journey with you for a fourth time when, to date, you have never finished anything. He, ever. He finished the In green. his professional career. He finished the Green Woman. Did he, though? Well, that ending did not, you know, that was something that... It, it was finished. It was also... It's not the Green Woman. Like, I forget the name. He has this graphic novel that he kickstarted. Greenvale? Came out in four parts, but the fourth part came out, like, a year later and really wasn't any good. Something about, like, this... This wasteland and these Amazons who were looking for water. I don't know. It was a whole thing. Okay. But again, that was another situation where it was just like, why do you never stick the landing? Why do you never follow through? And even if it's not your fault, you have to understand that people have every right to be weary. hesitant. Yeah. It's not even weary. It's like, okay, Curtis J. Weeby, the guy has talent. It drives me insane. Like if he, if you were a bad writer, then you could just write him off and be like, I don't care. But you're talking about this is a 10-issue miniseries about, like, a bunch of girls running rampant in outer space. Like, basically, rat queens in space. And sure, I would be into that. But I don't I don't trust him. I, I don't have any reason to trust him. Uh, okay. Speaking... Well, we spoke earlier about uh, Chu and John Lyman. Mm-hmm. Predator versus Judge Red versus Aliens, number one. Oh, number four. Oh, Drawn God. by Chris Munian. This is Why? for me, right? It's by the writer of my one of my favorite series, doing... Uh, Judgment story. This is like, you remember in the 90s, they used to have those beer commercials. This buds for you! So. Now, we already yeah. had, we actually already had a Judge Dredd versus Predator series, which wasn't very good years ago. It's very uh, easy to screw it up. Uh, th- there was a Judge Dredd versus Aliens, which was actually written by Wagner, I believe, which was pretty fun. You know, it mm. wasn't per, one, wasn't one of the greatest Judge Dredd things ever. The thing that worries me is the only time I've ever seen like a good aliens tie-in was the one that Warren Ellis did for Stormwatch. Oh. Only because you know what the thing is there? If you're like aliens and predators are defined by their ability to kill characters. Yeah. If you don't do that, then you're really just wasting our time. And that was the only time I ever saw like Ellis, they killed everybody. They killed the like half it was, of the cast. It was his excuse to start uh, the, the authority. The authority. Yeah, but it's like, but if you have to do as, that, that's a way to as, go. As, as far as I know, it was sort of meant as like uh, putting out, uh, you know, like giving the bird to the publishing industry because it couldn't be reprinted because there it was a, a part of a series that 
crossover that actually affected the plot of the next series, but they could reprint it because the rights are owned by two different companies. Yeah. It was, so it's like, oh, you're reading the authority. It's like, oh, we, we were Stormwatch and you are now the authority. What happened? We can't talk about it. Yeah. And um, in fact, like even afterwards. What, when now what came. worries me is that Lyman, when he's not on Chew, I've, I've read his other stuff and it's, it's not hit bad. It, no, it's not even hit and miss. It's just, it's okay-ish. Like his Batman was okay. His Godzilla was okay. His Mars Attack was okay. But you know, Chew is brilliant. And I start to wonder if most of it is due to uh, Rob Gilroy. Mm. It's or it's one of these things where the writer without the proper artist just can't, you know, make things work. Because know. we, we it, it does these... raise the question of how much creative input Gilroy mm. has beyond his writing. Because I agree with you, like a lot of Layman's other input doesn't have the same charm. Yeah. That might be because it's not well, the same genre. And Chew it's also, was explicitly meant to And be it's sort also of, not self-owned. It's always tying into something uh, or other. But I don't no, no. That. Everything else was a tying to something or other. It was yeah. a Batman book, a, a alien book. But a, that wouldn't necessarily affect the content. Well, some, some people thrive only when they're allowed to write their own things. It's possible. Yeah. Uh, anything else from Dark Horse? Nope. IDW? Well, I have one item from IDW, just to point out that, like, it's official now, in case we thought that it was just a huge April Fool prank, and we were not prepared. ROM number one by Christos Gage, Chris Ryle, and David Messina is coming out in July. And I'll be completely honest with you, with that creative team, I'm kind of tempted, uh, the first, even though it's raw. Uh, there was a preview for it in the IDW Free Comic Book Day issue. Was it any good? I didn't um, see it. It wasn't. It was just so by the numbers, like... He's a robot. There are aliens. He kills them. Because Rom was this great, like... <laughs> well, Rom... <laughs> Look at what you're talking about. Well, Rom had the crazy Bill Mandela charm to it. And because it took place in the Marvel Universe Earth, you know, it got this whole weirder perspective of it. Oh, there are aliens and nobody notices. Unlike all the other aliens that are there, the people notice. And he had a team you up with... You mean the Shi'ar? Yeah, he had a team up with the Iron Fist and... and <laughs> And the thing. So, you know, it had this weird charm. And here it's just like, it's generic alien hunting guy. Well, he's not a guy. He's a machine. Hmm. He's more machine now he's than He's a man. space knight. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's... it's Also, it's called ROM, which is a... F- I don't know. It's funny for me to say the word ROM. And not ROM space knight? No, it's just... I don't know. The word ROM is funny. I wonder if people... Who are not familiar with it could take seriously a series called Rum. That might be your association with Deep Space Nine. Because mm-hmm. Rum, the, the idiot brother. Oh. Rum. Uh, I liked it. Like, I, I, I liked him too, but like for seven years you associated him with like stupidity and then it's like, well, let's go he for was Rom. Very clever. He was, but he was uh, also dumb. Now, uh, I should mention, uh, the New Mutants Bill Sinkovich Artist Edition. Yes. Now, IDW is doing a lot of artist edition, which are art books, with a whole issue or several issues, in this case, of a very famous order printed in original size, straight from the pencils, mm. and it's Bilson Cabbage on New Mutants. It's one of the most important defining things in Marvel history. Yeah, it's one of those rare occasions of you look at something and this is completely different. This, yeah. I imagine that for Marvel readers at the time, this was completely out of their wheelhouse who is this what is he doing can you imagine like going from chris claremont and i don't even remember who the original artist on new mutants was and then like all of a sudden the demon bear saga starts and you pick up like the first bill sinkevich issue what the hell because his stuff blows my mind today and i grew up in an environment where such style was more you know tolerated and open but when this thing just came out i imagine it was just like 
revelatory. What? Yeah, and it still is. It's not. It's not just uh, important because it's revelatory. It's revelatory and it's good. Yeah. Anything uh, else from IDW? No. Boom. I have nothing from Boom. Uh, Adventure Time are relaunching. Adventure Time number mm-hmm. one, Adventure Time Comics now, not just Adventure Time, number one. Mm-hmm. And it's now going to be a series of shorts. Uh, first issue has Tony Millionaire. Good. Mm-hmm. Katie Cook, good. And Art Belzazar, good. Okay. Um, I'll be honest, I, I do mm-hmm. still enjoy Adventure, Adventure Time as a television series, um, but the comics have never really worked. Well, I, I've stopped, I've stopped watching the series and read the comic. I just read the oh, comic. Oh, no, the series is still holding up for the yeah, most part. Well, I don't know. Uh, and one last thing for me from Black Mask. Uh, Kim and Kim by uh, Magdalene Vizago and the artist uh, Eva Cabara. It's um, High Octane, High Adventure, Post Ten Girl Feminist Revenge Tale. About two friends called Kim. Okay. And I could the, do that. the previews look really fun. And Black I was Mask... kind of hoping it would be Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un going on vacation. <laughs> Going on like a road trip or something, but you know. <laughs> that would be a strange revenge. Wouldn't it? They will unite the Koreas, want it or not. Um, that film and Louise ending. Yeah. And, uh, Black Mask is one of these publishers that I always give them a chance because they, they try with really young, unknown and, you know, creators out of their, out of the regular wheelhouse. It's not, right. it's not the same boring white men, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. I, I'll be honest, I haven't found like, the Black Mask series to keep me interested yet, but anything's possible. Four Kids Walk Into a Bank we just started is really good. The first issue was really, really good. Yeah. Didn't really click for me. Mm. Okay. Uh, reviews. Reviews. Finally. Yes. After a trillion years in the making. Well, now we're caught up, right? Now mm. we have like all the recent news, so we're good to go. Uh, shall we start with uh, Renato Jones? Sure. If we must. You're gonna... No, well... <laughs> Renato Jones is going to Renato trigger... Renato Jones, the 1%. Th- there's going to be a, a bit of rage here, so... Uh, well, would not, you like to not, go first? Not rage. Uh, oh, I have rage. Bafflement. Okay, go so uh, Renato Jones uh, is a rich boy with a dark and troubled past, TM, mm. who may or may not be related to the infamous freelancer who is a killer who only kills the super mega rich. Spoiler, he's the freelancer. Oh! <gasps> The book actually tries to present it as a twist, yeah. which I sort of hope that it's like self-aware, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, yes, we it's know, not. we have to get it out of the... Okay. Let me reveal. It's not. If that's what you're waiting okay, here's for... Here's the you're... thing. This book looks like the figurative million dollars, because goddamn, can Kara Andrews draw? It's written for about two cents a piece. <laughs> not two cents a page, just two cents <laughs> It's Kara Andrews frustrates me because he's such a ridiculously good artist. I mean, we're talking Bill Sienkiewicz, not that level, but it's very, it's a very avant-garde-ish, dark feel, and he's doing stuff with the layout, and he's doing stuff, he colors it, he's doing stuff with the colors, and when you read this on the computer, uh, the part in the, when you see the baby, hmm. Renato looking at his parents getting killed from his angle, and yeah. you just have the page moving from one to another in black and white, it's amazing, you know, just... The scene alone is perfect. Yes. You know, story-wise, it's perfect. Coloring-wise, it's perfect. Art-wise, but it's just, everything is hooked to such an annoying, aggressively stupid story. Aggressively I mean, stupid. Nobody was, nobody looks at Carrie Andrews and expects greatness. Uh, that scene right? is just, this is the guy who perfect. had Spider-Man confess that he gave Mary Jane mm. cancer via radioactive semen. But let's, let's, let's talk about this. Okay. So, so writing. Okay. Tom, do you know what I am tired of? 
Do you know what I am finally, utterly sick to death of? Yeah. I am tired of comic book writers who think that the main, the mere fact of tackling, and I'm using big air quotes here, real world problems, somehow makes their work more sophisticated. Mm. Newsflash, you morons. It does not, okay? When your statement on the 1% is that you need a Punisher archetype to run around shooting everybody and stop them from injecting steroids that turn them into giants so you can have your supervillain fight, that is, and that this is somehow going to make the world a better place. What you're actually doing is writing a goddamn cartoon. And it proves well, the opposite. Book. But no, but it proves the opposite of what Andrews is trying to do, right? Him and Mark Miller and Frank Miller and it, all of these people who think that they are I doing... I don't think Frank Miller is against the 1%. I think he's very much... New Frank Miller is very much for the rich and famous. Whatever. Like this, there's a very particular brand of comic book writer who is under the delusion that because they have the freedom to talk about real world political issues and that the mere fact of doing so makes their stories better because they're more advanced and they're more realistic and down to earth. Yeah, because in this issue... uh, Nothing in this issue resembles real life. No, here's the thing. Because you have this guy and he kills rich people. Now, I'm not saying that I find the subject immediately appealing, but you have something there. But no. by make no, but by making the bad guy of the issue not just he's not just a rich asshole who allows people to die in the name of profit because that would have been interesting. No, he has to actually shove like the people into the meat grinder. Yeah, yeah, he's you know he's a rapist and a voyeur and he fires uh, the the poor people and he's making fun of oh you know he's snidely whiplash for Christ's sake. Yeah, and, come on. And if the idea of having a punisher of the one percent could. In theory, you could use it to discuss stuff like, you know, well, are we in part, you know, read the people who read this stuff responsible because we enjoy the same economy. And as far as someone in the third world is concerned, you and I are like the 1% because we have a house and we have a computer and free time and running water and whatever. Yes, but if but, you are operating on the assumption that that like that is what you're targeting, then the Punisher archetype fails. Mm-hmm. Because the whole point of the Punisher archetype is that these people have to die. It's not just that the 1% exists and that, you know, that they are doing bad things. Like the whole Renato Jones character here is operating on the assumption that if you're in the 1%, you need to have a bullet in your head, regardless of the circumstances. And of course, like, Be- oh, no, and the, it's the, the, by the, being in the 1%, you're automatically a terrible person the, other than the idea. Not a terrible person. This guy's a rapist and a child yeah. molester and a murderer and a slaver and a, like all of the things together. And like, that is the stupidity here. What, that is the immaturity. What's the name of this guy who raised the Prices of Pills, uh, Martin Sharkey. Martin Shkreli. Yeah, right. so the comics assume that people already want to punch Martin Shkreli in the face just for being Martin Shkreli. The comics assume that we need encouragement. That's no, not only that. It's that you need encouragement and you need somebody to like physically kill him, right? And that, and would, like, so, and that it would somehow solve the problem. Yeah, it that'll make everything not. better, right? No. It's stupid. It, uh, what it does here, mm-hmm. and I really like this is where the, the frustration and the anger is coming from. I'm sick of this delusion that every writer thinks that they can do this and that it somehow elevates them. All this, all Renato Jones proves is that Carrie Andrews has a child's understanding of like real world politics and real world. And it's like, and he thinks that, that he doesn't. He's like, he has it's, a child's understanding of social issues. It's brought to my mind. The most uh, simplistic, stupid, reductive It's brought to my approach. mind, uh, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon's The Punisher. Welcome He's back, friend. Oh, yeah. No, no, because in there you had the subplot about the Punisher, uh, wannabes. And, you know, one of them was a rich snob killing the lower elements of society. And his counterpart was a guy called Mr. Payback, who was, you know, 
not a communist, but a guy who's saying we should kill rich people because, but this guy actually had claims and num, you know, he starts saying your company is, has fired people after building, uh, an aerospace, uh, uh, company and you fire them and then you post, you know, actual real world stuff that corporations do. And when confronted with it, the, the CEO is like, yeah, we did this because we needed to make money, which is an actual thing. You know, he yeah. did. It's it's how you present these kind of problems in the context of comic booky Avengers type explosion. Exactly. Not like this. Not like by having people speechifying and explaining. This guy like celebrates. He's like, oh, you found my pornography collection. Go for this one. It's where the the rape and the torture is really great. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? And it's so even if sadists exist on that level in the one percent. They're not going to openly be like, yeah, sure, come check out my and, life. And it's, and what it's, the hell? And, and that's not the problem with them, right? If, if Where do you escalate if, from if, there? No, if you call your comic the 1%, the problem is not that they're evil rapists, it's that they're abusing the financial systems. You Except said. that they also happen to be evil rapists. It's like you're, you're conflating two things and again, that need to have two separate responses. And it's so... Good looking, it's such a good looking it comic. It looks good. It's, but it's it, a radioactive it, it, sperm all over again. It I'm hurts me. I, I, and I hoped, you know, against all hope that the problem with Kara Andrews as a writer up until now is that he just wasn't suited for working with, you know, sunny comic book characters and that left to, <laughs> no, no, the, the problem, no. no, yeah, the problem was, you know, he was bringing his own style to Iron Fist and, and Spider-Man, which were not suited for it. So, if he was taken out of it. Even if let, you take that out of... Yeah, but context, it does, like, obviously it doesn't work. No, it's like... To make the argument of artistic... Of stylistic incompatibility with mm. a character like Spider-Man, you have to overlook the fact that, like... I'm going to keep harping on this. He came up with the idea of, like, radioactive spunk. That's not, like... That, th- there's a difference between saying, like... Okay, I'm going to create a version of Spider-Man that kills people. You're going against the the thrust of the character, but like, okay, that's your interpretation. That could be stylistic Mm. mismatch, right? You want to do something with the character that the character should not be allowed to do. To go from there to a concept where this guy shot up his wife with like toxic... I don't even want to like go into too much it's, graphic detail. It sounds like something from a Peter Bag parody of a Spider-Man exactly. comic. Exactly. Like, something you know, from Marvel's oh, Strange Tales. The, the radioactive bite made all of my bodily fluids radioactive, so when I tried to knock you up, I guess you got ovarian cancer. Spider-Man, ladies isn't, and isn't that, it's like you Isn't have that to... the Spider-Man version of uh, Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex? The Larry Niven <laughs> article about why, about why Superman can't have sex. And yet DC have never, ever, ever... Tried to publish Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. Like, you know what comic. we should do? We should have them get together, and then he has an orgasm that Sean. punches through her. Sean, like, listen. Sean. Listen. You're gonna listen. have to No, because like Kara Andrews opened this this book. No, know, but like, this is this is not about his Spider-Man reign issue. No, but it, terrible, but it all comes right. from the same place. It mm-hmm. comes from the idea of this is a guy who thinks that just because he does something provocative, that just because he's like, yeah. So the villain in my first issue is the kind of guy who will throw innocent people out of a uh, shelter just so that he can take shelter and then revel in his porn collection, which is full of, like, s- snuff movies, and just be, like, completely, thoroughly, cartoonishly that's, evil and that's irredeemable. That's the real-world problem. So that Renato Jones can show up and be completely justified in shooting him in the head. Not only does he shoot him, but then let's not forget that this rich, evil, rapist, whatever, also, like injects himself with some kind of steroid that turns him into Bane. So there's a scene where, like, he's fighting this giant rich guy. 
and then kills him. Uh, I'm like, uh, what? And, uh, spoilers for the end of the issue because okay, we're there already. I'm not. I'm not spoiling it. Don't don't buy it. Don't read it. The, like, the whole thing towards the end of their run to the shelter of the rich guy within the boat. He has like a panic room, mm-hmm. and it turns and the freelancer is killing everybody on board, all the rich people on board. And he's like, oh my god, there's a 20 minute delay on the tape simply so that Renato Jones can show that he was the film. We when? knew that. No, no, no. We, we were not, not under not, any illusion. Not only is it a bad twist, when did he do that? We, we They were together the whole time. When did Renato Jones run into a back room, switch, I don't know, the tapes back and made everything run 20 minutes later? And he he's, did it simply... He's Batman. And no, and he also did it for no reason. He did it so he could reveal to the readers that... The surprise, yeah. like it wouldn't, it does not make any difference to the, the guy. The, the, if the guy's about to die, yeah, and you are going to reveal yourself to him, it makes absolutely no difference if he thinks that it's, it's you it's or a, somebody else. If it's supposed to be dramatic, uh, uh so what's dumb. what's his, David Wong from Cracked? Oh, I love him. Yeah, he once said this triad about if you think about the things that horror villains do from the point of view of the villains, like the whole set up a head in the fridge to shock people, and you think, well, he. Chopped the head and then he put it in the fridge and then he said, "Well, I hope this guy is going to the fridge." And I hope. And then you wait for your your victim to open it to be shocked, and only then you attack him. Think about all the time, and you just want to kill the guy. Yeah, so, you just been like standing there in the corner waiting for him to like. See and what? The body. What if he didn't want anything from the fridge? What if yeah. he went to the I don't know to the faucet and just poured himself a glass of water? Well, see, like for example, one of the things that he points—I remember that tirade really well. One of the things that he points out is like you know at least in the first Friday the Thirteenth it makes sense because she sets it up so that no matter what door you open you find the body. So then it's like ah ah and just going from like one door to the other and finding corpses. All of that makes sense. But then sometimes you think about like okay they just sort of expected you to go down this particular hall and open mm-hmm. this particular door. If they hadn't, you'd just be standing there like waiting all night for something to happen and nothing happens but none of which has anything to do with Kara Andrews who is an idiot and one of the <laughs> okay. worst writers that okay, I okay, have okay, ever no no, no, no I'm, no, I'm no, shying no, away no, from no. personal interest the this writing, isn't personal this is based no, on the his ri- work the writing is stupid I'm, the writing is stupid yeah, the writing I'm, is always stupid when it's Kara <sighs> Andrews you know nobody has said anything about his Iron Fist run I was not going anywhere near it but like this is a it's level maybe even hardcore Iron Fist fans you know people who've been through a lot say no thank you yeah I, it's like look and he had I, this I'm whole triad and he had this whole triad in the back of the issue about you know standing up for your own and you know creating self created things for the sake of creators and it doesn't really work when you spend the last five, six years sucking from the Disney corporate tit. Mm-hmm. I mean, who do you think you're fooling? You were working on Spider-Man. You were working on... You finished he... Iron Fist last year. Yeah. you And he wants to paint himself as like this big corporate Avenger. What? Yeah, you know, when Robert what? Kirkman did it, he left Marvel and DC for a long, long time and said, I would never come back. And, he and never that was came a gamble. Back. Like, where exactly did he go? He went from Marvel to Image. Yeah. Image is not going to suddenly he, disappear under the ocean and that'll be the end of it. Yeah, and when Robert Kirkman went to Image, Image was the Image yet. Robert Kirkman built this exactly. version of Image oh, up from the ground. Oh, God, floor. I just, I can't, I cannot mm-hmm. deal with this brand of creator anymore because what they do is ultimately prove the stereotypes about comics that society uses in order to keep the industry down. Like, it's all connected, is is where I'm going with this. You know what I mean? Like, because the industry, because people like Andrews put out this kind of crap, then socially and culturally, the comics book industry is seen as something irrelevant and juvenile and immature, which allow diseases like Eddie Berganza to keep, to stay around. It's uh, all part of it, you know? Because uh, comics cannot make the jump into, uh, like, they cannot claim legitimacy when stuff like this happens. 
And because they're seen as illegitimate and, and cultural flotsam, then there's all of this permissiveness to do things that would mm. not be allowed anywhere else. Uh, it's all Kara yeah. Andrews' fault. Okay. The source of all evil. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But no, like, no. that's, you know, it, it's all... Just a source of bed writing, really. It's just a, it, it's a, it's another contribution to something, to like the case file against mainstream comics that we didn't need. We don't need more mediocrity from people like Andrews who are juvenile and immature and complete failures at doing, you know, like quote unquote grown up material and then be shocked that they don't get recognition from the mainstream press, right? That people don't consider comic book writers to be quote unquote real writers. Because of crap like this, because this is how you think. And you think that putting out a book like this on this level of maturity, uh, immaturity, that that's somehow an artistic achievement. Like you're patting yourself on the back for this. God damn. Okay. Next number one. Hopefully a bit more positive. Hopefully. Weavers. Weavers number one, written by Simon Sparrow with art by Dylan Burnett. And colors by Triana Farrow. Uh, the plot is about a guy called Sid, who is a young up-and-comer in the mob, in the West Coast mob. Only in this universe, the mob is called the Weavers, and they all have spider powers. Yes, they do. Yeah, well, sort of. I, like, Sid's power does not seem well, spidery. <laughs> they, have, they have powers that are spider, visually spider-like. Are they? Well, he, <laughs> he shoots, he shoots rays that look like, you know, spider webs. He shoots this mass out of his hand that's, yeah. I, I'm not sure what it is. And also these powers come because e- evil alien magic spiders are, ho- are like hosted within them. I guess. And, and whenever, you know, th- there's a limited amount of spiders, so they jump into a new body every time the host body right. dies. Right. And, and Sid specifically inherited the spider powers from the sister, the sister of the family's head. And he's not happy about it. He's like, you've got, you got big shoes to fill. The spider chose you to be a low life gang- gangster. Yeah. Mm. It's a bit weird, this one, isn't well, it? It's a Simon Sparrow comic. Yeah, we always have time for him, uh, but I do feel like it's been a while since He's justified that. Well, you didn't like Cry Havoc. I did. So. I did. So, well, he's. I the the thing with Simon Sparrow does he takes this premise, and that most people only take it, you know, like one percent away from what you think about. Because most people say I'll do a gangster story, hmm. and most comic book people say I'll do gangster stories with superpowers, and only Simon Sparrow would say I'll do a gangster story with superpowers, and it's all spider themed, and there are evil magic spiders that are actually within. The, the gangsters and they jump around from body to body because I think most people, most writers would be like, well, they have like the spider theme and that's it. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I, I found myself having the same thought with this that I had with Cry Havoc, which oh. was that there's something wrong with the structure here. Oh, really? The, I thought it was very, you know, the story is a bit odd, but the, the structure is off. Really? The structure for me was very basic, but you know, a strong basic structure of the first issue. When you start reading the first issue, by the third page, mm. you have explicit visual confirmation of the spider magic, right? Like, you yeah. have, like, explicitly, right there on the page, these mobsters have supernatural powers. Yeah. And then they play coy with that for the rest of the issue. Like, it's treated as this sort of shocking thing later on, like, at, at the very end when he manifests his power. No, 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 I disagree. I think it's just played as he wasn't prepared for that level of power. Because he's just discovering what he can do, and for the most part, it's played like, oh, you're the new guy, you can't, 
literally you can't use your powers. And when he finally, because apparently every spider, you know, the power isn't dependent upon the host. Every spider has its own. We don't know that for sure. Well, it's it's the subtext of what she's saying, right? The the daughter that she is with, she's like, well, I've got I've got crappy powers. You got good powers. You're supposed to be better simply because you got the biggest spider. So when he has this scene of, holy shit, that's what I can do, you know, it's supposed to be like, what, what am I doing? And, you know, I, re- I really like this, fr- this issue, uh, especially the part where they discover who's the guy they're threatening. Mm. And he has like a two page spread of, you know, small panels of she's talking and he's like, what, what have I been doing? Yeah. And, and that comes up it's, in the plot as well. It's so a very a, Bandis thing, but I'm talking early Bandis, like the yeah. first year of powers when he had this double page spread. The reaction shot. <laughs> and you know credit for the art it's just really funny just looking at him going like you know tiny tiny variation of what 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 yeah but Mm. I don't know something about it struck me as weird also in terms of where the issue ends because if he were an undercover cop then what happens at the very end of the issue would be a swerve right it would be an unexpected thing I, I don't know what it's meant to convey if you know he says according to him like, this was something that happened to him, right? He did not intend to be in the mm. vicinity when the powers were passed on. He inherits the powers. And the thing that makes people suspicious about him is that he's eager. Yeah. He wants to be part of this family. He wants to participate. He wants to be His justification important. is that he never had anything in his life and now yeah, he finds it. Yeah, he was nobody. A if sense you, of direction. If you take that at face value, mm. a, as indeed Harvest seems to because she says... You know, he seems legitimately surprised. So he's not an undercover cop. That's for sure. But then if that's the case in the last ish, the last page, the, the big twist isn't really a twist. No, I, well, we're it not going to spoil exactly it, but I'm saying it's a twist because he was never sure what he couldn't do. And when he discovers, you know, I thought I was small time building up. No, apparently I'm a big time and I'm not even sure I could control it. I really like this issue. I don't know if I was convinced uh, I, by I, it. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced by that. And I think there, a, I think it's very, very nice visually. It's, you know, it's not super yeah. advanced, but it's very strong. I might have just re- reached like peach. I might have just reached peak Cthulhu saturation. Well, it's not Cthulhu because it's it, like tentacles. And, yeah, yeah, okay. And teeth. The, 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 the actual design of the powers is a bit, you know, the art is very good and stranded strong art, but when they actually use the powers, it becomes a bit Magnolia-ish. Yeah. Which, uh, for me, there's never a peak Magnolia. There's always, I need more Magnolia <laughs> in my life. Always and forever. That's fair. Uh, and you know what? I'd say it's a strong issue. I think it's a better dot issue because from Cry Havoc, because Cry Havoc tried to do too much. Yeah. And, you know, Weavers... See here, I feel like it didn't do enough. Oh, well, well, I think it did just, just enough. I would say that, you know, there's a bit of an exospeak problem, but at least justified by him not knowing how the powers work. So we're just saying, well, you're the new guy. We sort of have to tell you A, B, and C. It's kind of ruined when they say, well, I know how it works, so. But that's, like, mm. that's also the only thing that's going on here, because he, he's under suspicion for being an eager new recruit. No, no, there's several things going on here. There's the mystery of, uh, who killed the ant. Okay. There's the, will the new guy prove himself? And there's, the, there's the daughter, you know, setting up her plot, because she doesn't have, she does not seem to be making any kind of plot. No, there is something, because we know that the father doesn't really like her and trust her. And and part of it is there. She is associates that, ma- that with her. Ability. Yeah, she associates it, but maybe there's something more. And there, and there's also the. Think that. I think there's a lot going on here. You know, not mm-hmm. not too much, just right enough. And for me, 
not a perfect doubt issue, but that's what a good doubt issue, doubt issue should do. Mm. World, characters, plot, hook. I didn't get most of that. But, you know, I, I, I okay. got it. That's fair. I might come back. Well, this is a six-issue miniseries, mm. so it's within the realm of possibility that I'll come back and look at the complete. Oh, episode. I definitely come back. But, um, I don't know. I just feel like Spurrier... I, I I always feel like I'm missing the hook with him. I've never finished. The, did the spire finish? Which the spire? Uh no. Last issue is delayed. I think it's coming out next month. Mm, we we should probably review this because the the first issue of the spire was really strong. Yeah, I mean, I that's the thing. I do feel like if I could sit down with his completed works, I might feel differently towards them. Like it's possible that he, you know all of these problems. Mm don't come up when you're immediately like instead of sitting and questioning what is the point of any of this you you're thinking maybe he's a trade guy you should read his work in a so. complete burst what was, mm. was he he didn't do bodies right that wasn't no him. no that's spencer, spencer. we I, always get confused i always get well the two of them has this thing of you're feeling always they're like they're on the cusp of greatness but never did he ever do anything for 2000 AD because oh yeah yeah Sperrier did uh... Glimmerats was mm-hmm. that him Glimmerats no 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 no. Uh, the one with the private detective is also a clown uh, Jack Point I don't think I ever read that uh, it's, it's, um, fi- it's it's fine did and... he do the one uh, the, the, with the angel the guy with the wings I don't that, that like there, there's a society that fly around uh, in the clouds, and then he gets like he rips their faces off and and sews them into his wings. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, he did write Facta with L. Ewing and Rob Williams, which was one of the best read stories ever for my money. I I I know that he's done like some Judge Dredd. Oh right? yeah, yeah. He he did but, a lot of two. He he's still doing two thousand eighty. He stuff. did Lobster Random, which I wasn't. That, oh, so you're thinking of the Simping Detective? I yes, think. yes. Okay, so which was fun. Well, he did Harry Kipling, and I did like Harry Kipling a lot. Uh, I was just trying to think of like when there were instances where he did beginning, middle, end, and it was fine, right? Because I was not a fan of his run on Legion. I had the same. I had sort of similar problems where it was sort of like I don't understand what the story is about. Like I don't know I, what I, is the arc of this. No, character. no, no. I think his problem is that he's trying to do a bit too much because I remember finishing uh, what was a Six Gun Gorilla. He yeah. did, which was, you know, you, you're doing the six, six issue mini and it's like, it's about media and about public trust and about the power of stories yeah. and about these, and about the character arc of this guy and the character arc of that guy and about memory and about, and it's nice, you know, it's always better that you do too much and too little, but yeah, he's ambitious. I'll give him that. Yeah. I just, I just always feel like, like with Cry Havoc. These were the same problems, right? You're telling me about this character, mm. and she undergoes this huge personality transplant in the space of two years without any, ever showing us like any justification. And it's like, oh, by the way, she's pregnant. Oh, by the way, she's a werewolf. Oh, by the way, she's in the army. Oh, by the way, she's not the only creature in the army. Oh, by the way, she's looking for a commander. Oh, it's like, what, 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 what? Slow down. So one thing at a time. Leave something for the second issue. You know? Well, well, like you said, but it doesn't happen here. Here, everything is taken. Takes place in a very relaxed pacing, and you know mm. there's no big bounce or anything. It just didn't click for me. Uh, for me, it did. Right. I, I'd say Weaver, give it a shot. I say maybe come back for the trade. Okay. Moving on, Penny uh, Dreadful number one. This is the first book we did from Titan, I believe. It is. We're, we're like we're having this bingo of publishers, and we're like Titan bingo. Ding, you know, it's well, it's like the very opposite of bingo. So uh, Penny Dreadful like... number one, written by uh, Christy Wilson. 
Cairns. Cairns with Andrew Hindeker and Chris King. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That's a commission. And art by Louis De Martinez. Now, I've watched five minutes of the first episodes of Penny Dreadful. <laughs> and I've said, okay, that's a thing. I'm not in the mood for it. And then I've never watched it again. I saw the first two seasons and quit. Well, that- so that's like five thousand. Like we both reached the idea. same point, just different. No, <laughs> well, no. What is Penny Dreadful? Okay. So Penny Dreadful is basically a less intellectual League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or rather, um, it's one that is not so much concerned about the author showing you how smart he is. Mm. Like you don't get lectured. It's an actual Penny Dreadful. Like it's a, it's sort of an action adventure um, in Victorian Britain with literary characters. Yeah, the story's set slightly before Bram Stoker's Dracula takes place. So you have the main characters are Mina Murray's father, Malcolm. We're talking about the show, right? Yeah, the show. Yeah, and also the comic guys. So. Well, uh, uh, Ethan Chandler, who turns out to be uh, Larry Talbot, from the, the werewolf. Yeah, yeah, the Universal Wolfman. Uh, Victor Frankenstein in his creature. Ooh, Named Caliban, who is the worst character and the worst interpretation of Frankenstein's monster that I have seen. He's in called what? My life. Caliban. Caliban, like Shakespeare. The, but the Tempest. but the creature is called Adam. That's well, enough of a symbolism. Well, no. What they did was they did a bit of a twist. There was like he does create Adam first, but then oh. Adam is actually a second creation, and the first creation comes in and sort of rips him apart. He's like, Father, I have returned. And he's played, uh, it's just like the, for two seasons straight, right? Mm. Caliban's whole thing, the monster's entire theme is speaking poetry, condemning humanity and looking for a woman. And he doesn't particularly care if the woman likes him or not. He's just sort of like, oh, why can't, he's nice guy TM. Wow. And it's like, That's oh very, my god, no! I, I, I've read some odd interpretations of Frankenstein, including the one by the, uh, who, who? Doctor, uh, the, Doc Frankenstein. Doc Frankenstein, yeah. Yeah. In which he was a science crusader, which was weird. This sounds weirder and worse. It is just really bad. Mm-hmm. Dorian Gray pops up f- for reasons of because, because he on, was in the league, no, no. in the League of Extraordinary Cause if you're movie. on Showtime, somebody's gotta have gay sex and it's gonna be Reeve Carney, so you might as well. Okay. And then, uh, now Vanessa Ives, who is, uh, Ava Green's character. Reeve Carney? Reeve Carney. The guy who was Spider Man. Yeah. In the Spider Man musical. Really? Having tons of gay sex all over the place. And straight sex. He, okay. And it's Dorian Gray. Yes. So he's basically slept with half the cast by this point. And that's fine, but he doesn't have any other relevance to the and story. And also the characters. He's basically, he's sort of like, he is like, he the sounds bus. like the fanfic character that you bring in, in as kind yourself. Of. I mean, oh, listen, everybody likes him and he's the coolest. Every single character on this show, besides Timothy Dalton's, uh, Sir Malcolm Murray, has slept with Dorian Gray. Every single one. Th- them and Frankenstein's monster. And it's like, I keep thinking, okay, that's okay. probably gonna happen. Now, at some we've point. talked about the show that just to avoid talking about the comic, which is weird. And I say this no, to someone who watched, not weird, incomprehensible. I've read this issue okay. twice. I have no idea who these people are. And, you know, some of them I recognize as literary characters because they mentioned Mina Harker. So I'm like, yeah, okay, so I'm supposed to know these people because I've read the book. Well. But I have no idea what who they are, what they are doing, uh, who they are chasing, who they are avenging. They are fighting against vampires, which is not Dracula? Mm, his servants. And it's not helped by the fact that everything is drawn in the shadows, yeah. in deep blacks, because it's drawn like they're doing the TV show and they have limited budget, so in the TV show that's made by who? Showtime. So, you know, you can't... Who you don't can't, really have budget problems. No, no, but, you know, you can't, you can't show giant CGI werewolf every single minute. You have to do it... No. No, so you do it from the shadows, you do trick photography. You don't have this problem in a comic. Why is the comic drawn like they have budget issues? I'm going to blow your mind here. Okay. 
The problems that you've described so far narratively and that they yes. don't introduce, these are things that you would typically assume would be appropriate for a person who is approaching an adaptation without knowing the source material. Like yes. you would just assume that because you don't know who these yeah, characters are. I assume are. that you actually know what's going on. I don't. And I'll tell you why. This is why I said it was weird. The first issue recaps events of the first season. Okay. And then contradicts them. <laughs> The fight between the vampires and Mina Harker, uh, and, uh, Vanessa's group. Yeah. That happens like at the tail end of the issue, the big climactic fight did happen at the end of season one of, uh, uh, Penny Dreadful. But where the episode ended with them killing the vampires and going home, in this issue, something else, a- another character comes in. Yeah. Which a is char- a spoil. No, no, no. We shouldn't spoil. It's just, one of the things that comes understand- in who did not appear in the, in, in, no, in the episode no, that but, they are adapting. But he's actually mentioned previously in the issue, oh, I, I know this guy. I hate him. And in, then he appears yeah. and nobody recognizes him and he has to say, oh, I'm this guy you hate. And I'm, what? Even, you just mentioned him five minutes ago. But even from the perspective of someone who watched the show, I was like, wait, what? That, because before that, it's a panel for panel recreation of the final battle. Ugh. And then, this guy shows up and is like, wait, but that is literally not what happened in the episode that you have been copy-pasting so the entire time. So they're Rosencrantz and Gildersending it? Badly? I don't even know. How, like, it's it's not an adaptation because this character doesn't exist on the show, but it's also not an original story because nine-tenths of the issue are a recreation of the final confrontation so of season one. So we're again back to what if, why bother? I like I don't get it. I mean, look, I ended up dropping Penny Dreadful because the second season was not so good. Okay, uh, the, you know, it has a cast of solid actors. I'll say this mm. really. You know, they have Eva Green, they have Timothy Dalton, they have, uh, um, you know, who is surprisingly good at this is Josh Hartnett. He's playing. Uh, You're blowing Ethan my mind, Chandler. John. I'm blowing your mind. He's really good. Okay, and you wouldn't expect that from him, but like he really turns in a solid performance. Um, they're all Americans. Larry Treadway plays Victor Frankenstein. Okay. If you see his face, you'll probably know who he is, but you, like, he's not. I doubt it, but okay. Um, he plays Victor Frankenstein as, like, this morphine addicted on the verge of going insane. And the, the crazy thing is that he's really good at it. Um, but it's just, at some point, the show's sort of, like, gone downhill. You probably know this guy from somewhere because he's been like everywhere. He's so young to be a doctor. When when did he get his PhD? Uh, they're going with like a prodigy, oh, which okay. is fine for Victor Frankenstein, accessible. But like the show sort of went off the rails, and now the comic comes in, and I'm thinking the, the comic is not even on the rails. It's so far away from the rails. It's the like, rails. It's 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 driving a hearse it's, on the speedway. But is this not mystifying? Falling into it's like I'm the, this issue is mystified. both an adaptation and not an adaptation. So I'm like, wait I, a minute, I, so what are you doing? Even the excuse of this is based on something I haven't watched doesn't work because we've reviewed adaptation of stuff yeah. that either we didn't watch or we hated. I mean, none of us expected to enjoy Power Rangers number one. We loved it, so this is no excuse. Yeah, this is just a bad bet. It, and you know what? The basic For my money, this is the worst comics we reviewed this week because Renata Jones yeah. at least A, looked good and B, had ambition. I Renata mean, Jones at least got me mad, <laughs> which is something. I mean, it was stupid because he tried to do something interesting and failed and again, it looked gorgeous. This one looks bad and tries to do nothing but being a penny dreadful Th- this, comic. This one fails 
at what it's doing by not doing it and doesn't and, do and, and, what and, it's... And it's not, and it's not Titan's fault because, you know, again, I, no, because, see, I don't like Doctor Who, but there are Doctor Who comics that I've read were fine, you know, perfectly fine. Okay. You, you know, they had Al Ewing, they had Rob Williams, they had good writers, whatnot, right. and they produced... And again, here, here's the thing. I can't stand the Doctor Who TV show. I've actually well, read my is... fair amount of Doctor Who comics... But Without Doctor Who actually, has built into it the expectation that you could just tell a story based yeah, on Yeah, you know, but... Uh, it I've, I've, really, like, narratively... No, no, but, but I've read the Doctor Who and, like, oh, uh, we've met the Sontrans and, and inwardly, and, like, who the Sontrans are, but I don't care because, okay, he fights uh, an alien dude okay. or whatever. Yeah. Here it's... Supposedly the plot is they fight vampires and there's someone in danger they have to save her. Like, Literally, not I even no the idea. recap page. This yeah. is the thing. It's like not even uh, an explanation. No, page. introduce the character. Who are these people? You're doing a comic book. When you introduce the characters, have a little, you know, title page saying uh, Mina Harker, Vampire Slayer, Jonathan, Jonathan, Mary, yeah. uh, Doctor Scientist, Titan, though, mm-hmm. as opposed to the creators, because it seems to me, based on how this issue was published, that the expectation seems to be, you know, what people who are watching the show will read the book. There doesn't seem to be any thought given to the possibility that maybe someone would pick up the issue and yeah but even somebody who watched the show apparently doesn't enjoy it so so it's not even work it doesn't even work as a bell and fan service it just doesn't work period like all it does is introduce a character on the very last page who wasn't there on the show by rewriting the events of the actual episode so i don't know who that appeals to Shall we finish with the trade review? Let's finish with the trade review. Well, and uh, not only story, a trade review, story arc review, technically. It's a story arc review. It is a main course, and for once, it is delicious. Hmm. Let's go positive. Uh, introduce it. All right. So we will be talking about the first five issues of Ringside. This is by Joe Keating, art by Nick Barber, Simon Go, Ariana Maher, uh, Image Comics. Uh, the plot? Plot. Okay. Preface to the plot. Yes. We've talked a lot about the ubiquity of the weird detective genre in comics. Mm. It's especially at Image. In media in general, even. Yeah, yeah. but I think, like, Image also, like, when you talk about Copperhead, The Fuse, da 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 like, there have been a lot of examples of that particular angle coming up with Image Comics. But in most of those cases, the sense, I think, of it being cliche was also tied to the genre that the weird detective was attached to, which was, in most cases, science fiction. Yeah. When you think about, uh, um, like I said, Copperhead, The Fuse, uh, Dark Horse, Mystery Girl, which we talked about as well, when you talk about all of these. The actual comic called Weird Detective. The actual, well, which we haven't read yet, to be well, fair. Well, I've, read, also, I've read few Okay, ones. so like, the same principle, right? That these are appended to very specific things. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that in principle. If, for example, we had a Weird Detective in a medieval fantasy setting, at the very least, that would be something that we haven't seen before. Now, by the same token, modern-day quirky detectives tend to be written along very specific lines. And I'm thinking here of something like Second Sight. Remember, mm. like the guy who's piecing together the murder because he's uh, clairvoyant. Monk. Monk was another excellent house. You yeah. know, like they tend to be very, very specific. What Ringside does is present a story that is completely down-to-earth. There are no supernatural elements here at all. It has, in fact, in my opinion, more in common with the sort of noir stuff you see with Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips than anything else. I thought Southern Bastards, actually. I haven't read that, so I can't can't speak to it. It could be true. Mm. Um, So the story concerns Dan, who is a former wrestler living in Japan at the start of the story, who receives a phone call from an ex-boyfriend of his named Terry, who he abandoned in order to pursue a career in professional wrestling. 
He shows up, starts investigating, of course, in the blue velvet tradition, sticks his hand directly into the wasp's nest, and all hell breaks loose. And that's basically sort of the setup for the first arc, is him coming back and trying to basically play the part of a, of a investigator. An action hero. An investigator and an action hero 20 years younger than he actually is, who has not sustained the kind of physical damage that wrestling has inflicted on him. Mm-hmm. And I really, really enjoyed this. Okay. Um, when we talk about the unusual nature of the detective as being sort of a, uh, a hook into these kinds of stories, because the mysteries themselves tend to be fairly pedestrian. Somebody calls you up in the middle of the night and it's like, uh, I screwed up big time. It's like, okay, you either got involved in drugs or gambling or a criminal organization of some kind, right? That's probably, that's usually how it goes. I've got, I've screwed up. I've signed a five-year contract with Xenoscape. You have to help me. I've subscribed to like the, the masterworks of, of, uh, Frank Miller and I can't, I can't cancel my subscription. DC won't let me. Anyway, so the setup for that I think is very noir and that he comes back to this hometown that he hasn't seen in a long time. He has maybe two friends. And these people are, on the one hand, willing to help him, but on the other hand, they place very strict limits on how far they're willing to go, mm. which limits him in, as return. Like, one of his friends is a retired Marine. She could have ended, like, the entire plot of the story based on what you find out about her at the end of the first issue, or, like, what she ha- what she keeps in her house, but it, that's not how it goes. Okay. Um... And I, I like the, like, the, the wrestling angle is unique. It's not something that I've seen before. Okay, here's my problem with it. Yeah. The wrestling angle is unique, and the more I've read of it, and uh, I've read the story and I've read before the story, I thought I would like him to focus more on the actual wrestling stuff, because it ended up feeling like a backbone to the detective stuff, which for me was a bit... It was fine, but generic, and there are certain things, like the end of the first issue, it seems really clever, you know, when you pick up issue two and you have this moment of like, uh, you thought it's going to be the generic action beat, but it's not, mm-hmm. but then I ended up thinking about it again, what the actual characters are going through. I'm, I'm just going to spoil the, not the end of the arc, the end of the first issue. Sure. Because you have this thing of, you know, he's saying, I've got to save my friend, and his, and his female friend, she's taking him to her uh, armory, basically, because she's a former Marine, it's the USA, she's allowed to buy and hold... 20,000 assault rifles. Mm-hmm. And then the second issue starts and she's like punching him in the head like, you idiot, you think I'm going to give you a weapon? And it's funny, but then I ended up thinking, so you took a guy, you know, to be mentally unstable and in grief and you opened up your war room to him to be fair, she simply didn't. to beret him. Not Jim. Why didn't you just say, no, you need professional help. I'm not going to give you a gun because... It it doesn't work for me as it's something an actual person would do. It's a very cool scene. No, but he knows about her arsenal before no, he even No, shows but up. you know, she has the keys, she has the code, whatever. You know, the correct response would have been the correct human response would have been no, go get help, not uh open the door. Psych, I'm not gonna give you anything. What what she would have done if you would just push her off the chair because she's wheelchair bound and just grab a gun. Or he's try her friend though. Hmm? He's her friend though, he's, that's the thing. It, he's so crazy, he actually thinks of trying to become a vigilante. She doesn't know that at first. Well, she like, does. She the, tells him. The way that it works out in terms mm-hmm. of the issue is that he mm-hmm. shows up at this friend's house trying to... And and this was actually something that I liked about him. Throughout the entire arc, Dan is constantly looking for the shortcut to yeah. get to the end of the investigation. Like, let me grab this taser and I'll interrogate someone and I'll find out the truth. Or let me grab this gun 
and I'll I'll just I'll shoot everybody up, and you know it'll be fine. And he's constantly running up against the people in his own support network who are like, "What the hell are you doing? It doesn't work like and that." And it's one of and it, like this is where the wrestling angle comes in. I think he is looking for the dramatic reveal, not just the dramatic reveal, but the the storyline, the way that it plays out in professional wrestling. That everything is like condensed, mm-hmm. and it's like by by throwing someone over your shoulder and pinning them to the mat, your problems are solved, right? That's where I thought the, the cleverness was. Now, admittedly, there is something weird about this narrative that I couldn't really figure out, which is that you have a parallel story here. Yeah. While Dan is doing all this investigating, you have... One Reynolds, of his old friends Reynolds is mentoring an, an mentoring up-and-comer. This and the only thing that they have in common is that Reynolds is also gay, like the, the junior mm-hmm. kid, which is when they all sit together and he's like, my significant other. And the guy looks at him and he's like, uh-huh, spit it out, right? I, I, but they don't play any part. I, see, in and the here's the thing: I, I found the the wrestling B plot more interesting simply because they are the wrestling thing is the wrestling world in general is so interesting in its perversion and its uh, brutality. It's a business based on people fake fighting, which usually ends up involving actual fighting. And you see with Dan, like uh, he, because he, because when, when his he, visit to the doctor is like, listen, your spine is like. Pfft. Because when, you know, when the businessman is also an ex-bodybuilder with a, who likes to abuse steroids, you know, it's gonna be a bit weirder than the meeting at the bank. And they have this whole thing where, you know, a TV writer is trying to pitch ideas and everybody, and there are good ideas, but everybody who's an actually wrestling writer is like, look, we're not supposed to offer good ideas. Yeah. We're supposed to, to offer insane, stupid ideas that our boss likes. It's the closest thing to mm-hmm. a superhero genre that you can actually find. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, wrestling it's... superheroes are very close. Yeah. Though, thank God, uh, Dan Slott cannot body slam the critics. <laughs> Verbally, and even then, he wishes. <sighs> I, don't okay. know, I, I really and... enjoyed it just because of... No, no, it's, it's fun, but it's I get... It's atypical. The... It's not just that it's Yeah, fun. yeah, it's okay. It's but not... I, I get a feeling that it should have been more... By being less of a crime novel. The, but see, that the, was, the crime stuff is well written, but it's not... I, I bought it for the wrestling stuff, and I ended up with a detective story who has a background in wrestling. Which informs his character, sure. But I wanted it to be the character. I wanted it to be the story. Uh, yeah. Another problem... The angles is, don't really seem mm-hmm. to gel well here. Because Reynolds' story, as far as I could tell, like the, the older guy who's mentoring the mm-hmm. younger guy, and they're working out their problems with the And he's all wrestling. He's the... He you know, seems to be Hulk yeah. Hogan. So like, but then only a like, nice They guy. don't seem to connect to the A plot at all. Mm-hmm. They know Dan, but they're not actively helping him find Terry. So I don't. And then like you have Terry's whole, uh, sorry, you have Dan's whole backstory, which is like the the critical events of his life. This see, this might have been deliberate on Keating's part. I'm not sure because mm-hmm. he is a writer that. Knows how to set these things up in advance. Oh yeah, Glory is a great example of setup and and yeah, payoff. and then, like payoff later. I the you don't see a lot of his career as the Minotaur. Mm. People talk about it. You see, like they're they're always dancing around flashback like, and, and moments and costumes. But, but there's never like what what was going on over there. Like what really happened. I assume the next arc is going to dwell a bit Probably. more into it. And really, like if, if Glory is an indication of how he sets things up and mm. and then knocks them down next time, I, I feel like. What the first arc doesn't resolve completely is probably something that's on the slow burn. And I'm, I'm okay with mm-hmm. that. For Keating specifically, another writer, I might be more skeptical. But I feel like, because Glory, for example, like one of the central reveals of that book, one of the reasons that I love it so much is that you have the first arc, right? 
And there are things that are set up in the first arc that don't come to fruition until the very end of the story. The whole don't first know issue that. that builds up towards the reveal of glory and then what the, the actual condition she's in. Is yeah. It's like, but even like when they talk about the people that she knew in mm-hmm. her life, right? You're never given any reason to suspect that one of those people was her lover, mm-hmm. right? She just happens to be there in the group shot. That ends up being critical to what happens at the end of the story, right? When she goes to like the I land of the really dead. I should really read Glory again. Oh, you really so, should. It's fantastic. Such a good, it's been but, like, a while. When she goes to the good. land of the dead at the end. Mm. It's like you realize what that means only in the context of everything that happened. Uh, so with Ringside, I also feel like by the end of the first arc, Dan, like the, the situation with Terry is resolved mm. and it does put him on a different path. The wrestling seems to be taking a second uh, like it seems to be taking a step back, but I have the feeling that he's going to sort of loop it back in. Okay, now here's another thing. Yeah. Uh, Glory had Sophie Campbell. Uh, yes, proud be her name in the hallowed halls of uh, Valhalla. One of the best artists in the business. This one ringside has Nick Barber, who I've never watched before, and not quite ready for prime time. I would say. Would you say it was second rate, Sean Phillips? Want to be second in right terms time. of it like, doesn't even want to be Sean Phillips. It's like it's the guy who wants to be Sean Phillips. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I'm I'm sort of okay I'm, with that. I mean, I look look at this finger in page nine of the first issue where you know we have this guy looking at the TV and he has no arms, and <laughs> it's the first reveal of this character. And I assumed. Oh, aren't his arms behind his back? Well, it doesn't look... It, they are, apparently, but it doesn't look like it, right? It looks like he just... Uh, and it looks lot, like a bust. Yeah, and a lot of it... There's so many shortcuts here. That yeah. You know, every face that's even little in the background, not even in the, you know, like the audience in the third row, it's just... Everybody who's not in the front row of the panel is just like smudged faces yeah. and blurry lines and... It's not as detailed as it would have been. Uh, and, it's, and, and also, like, when they Not even detailed, do, but at least a bit more personality to it. Yeah. It's... Sh- Especially when they get to the reveal of like mm. what the Minotaur looked like, mm. you would think that that would have been an artistic moment to be like big and and majestic. Yeah. Because I, of how I, he I have it this, up. I have this sense, and I'm not sure that the colorist is you know carrying a lot of the work here. And it could that, be. that without that without decent coloring, even the art would be even more rough shot. Yeah, I mean, there's a shot of uh, of the bounty hunter where it's just like he looks like Clayface. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> and it. The art's not be- great. It gets better, you know, as uh, towards the first. It gets from annoying to competent, but never more than that. Yeah. And I really, it needs to improve a lot, especially if you if you're gonna if you're gonna do a personal story, you need to do better with the character based stuff, because you know the shots where people are reacting to the horrible things that just happened need to be stronger. And if you're gonna show us flashback to the wrestling thing, you really should find a different artist to do the flashbacks to make. Because yeah. you need to have this idea of, oh, the world of wrestling looks glorious from the outside, yeah. and beneath it all, you know, all the grass. Which is what he says. Like, yeah, but it, doesn't, that. but it doesn't appear like that in the art, right? So I, th- I really think they should find a second artist for yeah. this, or... I'll be honest. Or like, a different color. The art isn't great, but mm. Keating's writing is pulling me forward. Like, I am very, very curious I'm, to see I'm where go- I'm going to come back, but again, for my money, it's not the best thing ever. It's It's certainly not... Close no, to being Keating's there, best. There's room to improve. Yeah, yeah. There's I room think. to improve, but and it's, Keating it's, it's tends so to be... nice to get an image comic that's not science fiction. Yeah, science fiction, science fiction, fantasy, science and fiction. And where the weird detective angle is something that really has not been done that often. Like the whole concept of exploring, uh, like the world of wrestling and juxtaposing that with detective fiction, is pretty. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever read other wrestling comics? Because uh, do you mean comics by wrestlers or comics about wrestling? Both. 
Because there's both. I did read, um, there was a... There was the Web Spinner's Tales of Spider-Man written by Raven from the WWE. Which that was, I don't know. Which was a backstory about the wrestler who fought Spider-Man, uh, Bone Crusher. There was an alternate... It, it was it was a pretty great story because the whole thing was, you know, setting him up as this guy who's literally on the end of his rope and he actually has... He's so desperate that he's going to, you know... Fight just random people and like, oh, um, this is gonna be my big breakout. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finally make my money back. And the last shot is this guy in a spider mask jumping into the ring. Like, right. Oh, this guy that we learned to like in the last 22 pages is doomed. I remember the Ultimate Warriors oh, comic. Oh, now, this yeah. was some 90s <laughs> shit. Mm. This was like ribbons flying everywhere and veins and, and, uh, and up until recently. And I'm pretty sure it's Leefeld. Oh, yeah. And up until recently, I don't know if they're still doing it, WWE actually had their own comic comp brand, <laughs> publishing wrestling comics by Mick Foley. Now, Mick Foley knows to how to write for a guy yeah. who got hit on the head a lot. I've read his biography, it's pretty fun. He's the fun. comics were insanely stupid. Yeah. They actually did a Secret Wars-like event in which wrestlers met different versions of themselves. Oh, so you had a Good Hulk Hogan versus Hollywood Hogan, the evil version. And nobody got time for that. No, it was terrible. <laughs> it really was. Ultimate Warrior finds oh, Santa Claus and... Yeah, yeah. So it's... Uh, I'd say it's the best wrestling comics I've read. Yeah. Keep in mind, I haven't read I Super... Mean, look, I haven't read Super Pro KO, which is legitimately considered good. Neither have I, though. That's, that's okay. Mm. Um, for... I don't know. There's, there's something about this. There's some kind of charm here that I find myself enjoying. Keating has been hit and miss in the past. I absolutely adored Glory, but I didn't really click with Shudder. I might go back to it someday. Oh, I, but I, I, I really like Shudder. I forgot that he did it. I, it's, it's like it's, issue 20. Yeah, now. yeah. I've read the first arc. I'm like, oh, this is great. And then I'm like... I sort of dropped off after there's the There's so arc. much... There's so many image coming. Like, I would buy this trade <laughs> one day. And then I'm like, oh... It's on trade three. Well, I would buy this later. Right. Oh, there's a new number one. I should read this. He, he is good, though. Mm. He is a really good writer. And the the niggling sort of, you know, the drawbacks in the first arc, I feel like, based on his past work, I have reason to believe that it would improve. Mm. So I'm willing to stick around, for, at least for the next arc, to see where things go. But I really do, I like the characters. I like the setup. I like the the direction that he goes in at the very end. Uh, it it's a book that does not do the expected thing when it comes to these plots, and that's something that I appreciate because really the danger with image is in falling to cliche. Hmm. Like that is uh, with all of these books and all of these multiplicities, it's a real threat that they can end up being typical, and I'd rather they didn't. And this breaks the mold, so. I'm good with that. So, that was Ringside. That's our last review for this episode. Till next time, I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Bon appetit.